video game industry might just fail. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the video game industry is a tricky one because it's one of the fastest evolving ones. One of the fastest evolving industries in the world. Because of its rapid acceleration of technological growth, uh, workplace change, diversity change, and uh, popular acceptance and financial uh, success. Video games is ever-changing. Every year. Right? Much like film, much like um, television, because of the technology, because of the medium, because of the consumption, because of the price. But film and television internally do it every year. Technology in, in those worlds and in the theater world change every year. But for the consumer, it changes noticeably maybe every five, six years. For the video game market, it changes every year to some extent. Now, of course, some years are more notable, right? After an eight-year, right, when new consoles are introduced, the new GPU or the Unreal Engine 5, right? There are, there are benchmarks. There are moments of uh, monument uh, success and or change. Sometimes that change can be within the popularity of a certain genre, like the Battle Royale genre, like the first-person shooter genre, like um, any genre that's come before and will come in the future. So you might ask, well, side, damn, don't be so pessimistic. Why do you, why, why do you think the industry can fail? Well, before I get into that, first off, I want to say thank you to everybody who's been supporting the show, been supporting me um, in any way. Currently directing my new short film. It's very exciting. That's all I'll say about that. I'm trying to keep it under wraps. Um, got my next album on the way. I got an EP or two or three on the way. So a lot of new content still coming through the pipeline. Hell, I mean, at this rate, it'll come through 2022 and 2023. So very fun stuff. Uh, I'm gaming more. I'm, I'm loving it. I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, um, no, <laughs> I, I am really enjoying, um, playing these games, getting back into games or, or, you know, just, you know, just miss haven't been doing it as much. Uh, I do it a lot. Yeah, don't get me wrong. But since I got Elden Ring, I've been playing more consistently. Um, the new Rainbow Six Siege update is phenomenal. Elden Ring is one of the best games of the year. One of the greatest games I've ever played. And um, and I'm a baseball fan. Huge baseball fan. And I'm super excited for MLB The Show 22, which is coming out in a couple weeks. So it's a good year for, for video games. It's a very noticeably good year for video games, actually. But that doesn't change what's to come. So I'm not knocking video games. I'm not knocking the industry. I'm, I will critique it, but I'm not like saying it's inherently good or bad. Nor am I saying it will happen. Actually, I hope to God it doesn't. But I feel that it will at some point. And I've discussed this before. The Atari crash of... Oh, God, I don't even remember when. Late 80s? Basically, the premise of the Atari crash is that... You know, Atari was the hottest-selling home console. The video game was market was booming. And, in fact, it was so popular 
that people wanted to play more video games. And you might be like, well, okay, that's fine, don't we all? But, like, Elden Ring will take five bajillion years to con- to fully uh, <laughs> master. You know, not really, but... Um, or Dying Light takes 500, 500 hours to get everything, every 100% completionist, right? So, you know, what's the big deal? Making smart... Well, here's the thing. First off, at the time, equal to now, making a video game was difficult wasn't easy it's hard to finance technology was there but sometimes lacking on top of that the video game market at the time was geared towards coin operated games or cogs and basically um that that system is a very very simplistic system that works for that field but it's designed to be somewhat addictive i know right horrible in fact that's why people like elden ring and dark souls and that's why from software is so unique because they actually adopt that method but still yeah they make you want to keep playing and pushing and getting further and doing better next time even though you died and failed and have to go back to a certain point now checkpoints and stuff are the modern thing they're not crutches they're literally how what allow us to expand our games because oh you play an 80 hour long game and if you die once you have to be sent back to the very beginning yeah good luck getting anyone to play something like that not anybody there's probably some person out there some sick bastard who would (laughs) excuse me i'm very tired long day long day very busy day but very exciting so excuse the yawns and the dribble um but anyway my point is that the atari so that was their system so it was designed to be very quick the gameplay loop fully if you if you made it all the way through it's probably about 30 minutes long so we're talking about 30 minute long games maybe an hour maybe even less just depends i guess you know galaga galaga could go on for a fucking while (laughs) there's a lot of stages in galaga I'm very good at Galaga. It's like, I'll smoke most people in that game. Um, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, I got really into it. And I had a little arcade, what was a little arcade thing, so. So, yeah, I'm great at Galaga. I love it. There's a lot of stages in Galaga. I could see that being a quite long one for, for considering that kind of game. Pac-Man, too. Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, Galaga. They're classics. They're all challenging. They're all really fun, you know. And so they're trying to milk your money by making it hard, but still making it fun and and doable. Doable, not unfair, not unbalanced. You got to learn it. And you got to apply what you learn, right? Very simple mechanic. That is what makes games so goddamn powerful. Look at Portal 2. Look at Elden Ring. Look at Donkey Kong. They all follow that same exact principle. And that's key to learning, to understanding. Rainbow Six Siege does it too, actually, a lot. Rainbow Six Siege, if you die, you don't die because someone pulled the gun faster, usually. Okay, maybe sometimes they're pre-firing. There's bullshit to be had in that game, for sure. But my point is that it could also be because they knew the layout. They knew the map. They knew how the operator worked. 
knowledge is power in that game more than just being able to shoot. But at the end of the day, if you can kill everybody and you're good at it, that I guess that's all that matters too, because <laughs> you win then. So anyway, um, so the Atari thing. So we have the coin. We got the cogs. <laughs> coin-operated gaming, right? And then um, and then we've got the demands of the people, right? And we have the lack of supply. But it didn't matter because Atari was making so much fucking money they didn't know what to do with themselves. So what are they going to do? Oh, they're going to kick some of those funds back into making more new games. Not, It's not like they updated games back then. They had to make new ones. Oh, you liked... Whatever. Pitfall? Here's Pitfall 2. Not saying there's a Pitfall 2. I don't actually know. I'm just saying that that's the idea. But they also knew they had to keep it original. And there was the challenge of knowing that it couldn't actually be Coinbase. It did have to be expanded upon a little more. Now, mind you, Pong was one of the most popular games, so it's not like everything was the most. Uh, but the, but that game is simple, because, just like because of tennis and table tennis and hockey and those sort of one back and forth duel mechanism. That's a very popular system. You could be safe in any kind of system that has some sort of dueling. You know what I mean? Um, so my point is they were a great success. The video game industry was blowing up, but because of that success, they were overworked. Asked to put out too many games for the technological abilities they had. Their games didn't actually have longevity. It was inflated, internally infused with some sort of system that would make it artificially harder or longer for no reason other than to pad its gameplay time so more people would stay on those games longer to kind of buy them time. They made them a little more expensive. So on and yada da da da, and then it crashed. They just. It's too much. Ooh, it's too much. They got too expensive, and the quality dropped off so dramatically that people stopped having fun. These. Remember, this was before video games had established franchises and games and services that you can go into even if you're not having fun in a new game. New game drops nowadays, you don't like it. That really does suck. But especially if you're looking forward to it, it's the worst. However, that doesn't mean all video games you like are bad. I mean, go back to playing the games you like, right? If this new MLB The Show 22 is a disappointment, which I pray to God it's not, and it really doesn't seem like it will be. It looks like it's a great improvement over 21 and not a like significant improvement. Not not much has changed, but a lot of features have been added that makes it more fun. And I just want to grind again. I want to build my team up. I actually like that. A lot of people don't. That's okay. It's not for everyone. I get it. I do. But I like it. I like the challenge. I got good at the game, too. I love baseball. I played baseball for six years. I watch baseball intermittently. I got to watch it more. I'll be honest. I haven't kept up with it as well as I should. But I am now. I'm trying to. And I'm a Braves man, you know, I'm from Atlanta, from the A's. So uh, getting that World Series last year was great. So I'm super stoked about that. But um, my point is, if it's not great, I'm going to be super disappointed. Probably have a depressive episode over it because I'm a fucking autistic maniac who loves video games too much. But also, 
Um, I am actually autistic, by the way. I'm not making fun of people who are autistic. I'm making fun of myself who happens to have autism. Anyway, um, <laughs> just in case anyone's like, oh my god, this guy's terrible. I think you know me by now. I think you all know me well enough. Um, anyway, my point is that, yeah, sure, I'd be upset, but I'll still go play Rainbow. I'll still go play Elden Ring. Hell, I'll go play show MLB 21. I don't care. MLB the show, whatever. I don't care. I'll go play the games I like still. I ain't worried. And I'll find a new game eventually. I always do. There's always one that really, like, I didn't see coming. Insurgency Sandstorm I wanted for the longest time. Go check out my review on that. And um, it was, and I got it, and I'm like, wow, this is great. I, I'll admit, I don't play it as much as I do as I used to, but I, I got a good 70 hours logged in that. And right now, Elden Ring's out, and that's taking up my time, and I'm loving it. So, you know, these things happen. I'll go back to that. I don't know if I'll go back to Elden Ring once I get through the bulk of my playthrough, once I beat it. I do want to beat the main bosses, at least, and get a good chunk further, for sure. For sure, for sure. But... You know, I'm just being frank with you. I don't see how I have the time or the energy to go back. Let me do a new build. I might go back every once in a while in the world I have. Kill some monsters. Figure out some new stuff. Sure, of course. It's it's one of the best games I've ever played. It's a phenomenal game. I could see myself consistently keeping a rotation. Maybe playing it once, at least once a week, if not once or twice a month at the bare minimum in a, in a year or two. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? just depends on what grabs me. But back then, right, on the point of Atari, it wasn't like that. These gameplay loops were very, very brief, and they weren't always good. And the more they put out over the years of demand, the less quality they were, so people didn't want to play them anyway. It cannibalized itself, and it crashed. People stopped buying into them because it got expensive. The quality dropped off. And people got bored with video games. So, if we're having a... If you're... If, oh, sorry, if you're saying there's going to be a new video game crash, what is it going to be? Well, stick around. And I'll tell you. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. So, I was... Discussing and starting to draw the parallels... Of how the video game industry uh, could possibly have a massive crash again from an economic standpoint, but also from a creative and original IP standpoint. And it still holds true, and I'll start drawing these parallels in a minute, but before I forget, when the Atari thing crashed, that almost killed the entire video gaming industry, right? An industry now that is, um, you know, a massive, massive entertainment uh, industry. Massive part of it now, right? That combines all the art forms of visual art, graphic design art, computer coding, um, game mechanics... Uh, video and film art story telling in its you know simplest form writing music composition sound design it's really a combination of all of these things you know there's no other medium out there 
that is as su- uh, successful that combines every other entertainment medium from a technological standpoint. Doesn't mean they're all great. Doesn't mean it does it perfectly. Doesn't mean there isn't new things to be had. But uh, I, I get tired of people who are like, why do, why are so many people playing video games? What's the point? It's just mindless fodder. It can be. It can be, but it is entertainment. It is there is value to it. It does help people, right? It can help rehabilitate certain people. It can help create social circles and friend groups for those who might have a harder time. It can help manage and uh, and um, control isolation and anxiety and depression, right? And for that. The, the work that goes into it also needs to be noticed. It's a booming industry. And I think when the whole GameStop uh, squeeze happened in Wall Street, that made people realize, yeah, sure, it had to do with GameStop, but I think it kind of shook the foundation a little bit, making people realize that GameStop is having this much pull now it's partially because it's a retail store that was worth nothing then became worth something overnight right and that's just what happens with squeezes so it could have been anything right could have been any company that wasn't worth too much uh that had assets but but my point is and i'm not going to speak on that because i don't know enough about how all that works i did a little research on that when it happened because i found it interesting but i'm not going to speak on that like i know that i'm just saying you know that brought more attention to People who may disregard video games as something that doesn't matter. Now, it doesn't mean you have to love them or like them, but you can't ignore the impact in culture, especially uh, especially American culture, but also globally. Globally, how enormously successful video games are. Um, so, you know, and now, and now with that. You, you look at when film studios, right? Film is one of my great loves and passions, so I'm never going to, you know, I'll point out the, the problems with it and the things that could could be fixed, but I'm not going to, like, say, oh, film is irrelevant. No, no. <laughs> Anybody who says that is not aware of how many movies they probably actually watch or enjoy, right? Oh, films used to be better back in the... Shut the fuck up. You thought films were better back then. That's perfectly fine. That's your opinion, but that does, that doesn't mean it's truth. You know what I mean? I hate when people are like that. Um, They completely discount the meaning of something to someone else in their face. Right? And it's something that I have to go through a lot because I do love what I also create. Right? I'm kind of an idiot for that. I love making films. I've always loved watching films. I'm a film director. Right? I love hip-hop. I've always loved listening to hip-hop ever since I was young. uh, And now I'm a rapper. I'm not a video game developer, not smart enough to do that, but I do love to talk about video games and, and be uh, and know about the in, inside workings and the behind the scenes and the stories. You know, I, I just really find it an interesting industry to, to observe and to watch grow and change. And I'm a consumer of video games, so it's equally as important to me to inform my decisions when I'm purchasing and or spending the time to play a game. And that's something I'm going to get into in a minute. The new costs of playing video games 
has changed as well as the industry and some of the standards. So with that in mind, before we get into the modern industry and I start breaking it down piece by piece, I just wanted to preface everything with with the uh, little info on how the Atari crash went, right? And I'm going off memory here. I don't have notes. I'm not pulling up anything. So if I'm off, if I'm inaccurate about something, please just know I am going off memory from things I've learned uh, over my lifetime. So please just be aware of that. And um, and if I get anything wrong, I'll try to I'll try to learn what's right and and uh, correct my errors. But uh, my point is that um, the Atari crash could have brought an end to this beautiful art form in this incredibly booming industry that we see of today. And the only thing that we can really give credit, sole credit to, there are many factors that made it so it didn't absolutely die, right? People wanted to still keep playing. It was still fun, even after the crash, right? That was part of it. But but to demand a market for physical, right? There it wasn't digital back then. So you had to physically go out and buy these things. And a lot of them was garbage. So this is where Nintendo saved the day. And we don't credit Nintendo with this. I... I, I don't see many people doing that. When I say we and when I say the... I say, what I usually mean is modern-day average to semi-invested gamers. Right? I'm a gamer. I'm part of this community, part of this culture. Handful of them do. Handful of them understand, especially ones who were alive when that happened. But, but a lot of people who weren't and who don't know any better, especially younger people than me, really have a struggle... Uh, comprehending how very close it was and why, yes, Nintendo does shit that we should really correct them on. They do have too much control in certain markets. The fact that their games never go really go on sale, like their first-party games, is asinine. Activision Blizzard, too. They're not... They're equally at fault for this. Hopefully that will change um, in Xbox... through Xbox's acquisition, but... But, um... Or Microsoft, thank you. But anyway, my point is that um, Nintendo does get props where props are due. First off, they do make phenomenal games, and their quality assurance check is still to this day the best. Uh, they have hardware issues, sure. Sometimes there's bugs. There's always going to be bugs in a new game, right? But for the most part, they don't. They do not undercook and release things that are broken, that are fundamentally flawed, not because they're a bad game but because they literally don't work. We have a huge issue with quality control. In every other industry, when a product is sold, there has to be some sort of insurance or liability or some sort of uh, rule or system in place that provides the consumer with the basics of it working or the safety, or if in chance it doesn't, a way to refund for monetary purposes and for their own safety. Look at food. You can't... I mean, you can, but it's very rare. There's so many protocols into when that food is put on store shelves, the safety protocols that have to go into place for the bare minimum so they don't just accidentally kill us, right? (laughs) Look at uh, cars, Cars have to go through these safety checks. They ship you a car where the engine 
explodes, that's a problem. And they wouldn't do that because that's, unfortunately to them, that's a lot of money loss, not a life loss. But still, they just wouldn't do that. A film, even if it's a bad cut and doesn't make sense, that's just sometimes what happens because the art, the creation process gets muddled or the finances are hard or, you know, sometimes it just happens. But that they don't ship first drafts. They don't ship rough cuts. Rough cuts are never shown in theaters for a reason. They go through these processes and they have to check these boxes to make sure that it's up to a certain quality of viewing, of, of commitment. If people are paying to go to theaters, they are seeing a finished product. It's a very simple premise. And it's safeguarded by many laws and uh, regulations in America and abroad. You see it in every industry. And it's important. We need more of them. Companies should not be able to skiff and scam the consumers. If we're living in a time where everything is buy and sell and, uh, you know, uh, if we're living in that kind of system, then at the very least, what they're selling us has to be of quality to what we're paying for. That's at the very least the most fair they can do, especially since they can afford to do it usually. The video game industry is the only industry that I have seen over time, like personally witnessed, get away with murder in that regard. And it's one of the reasons that will lead to a video game industry crash. Because it's the same exact reason it happened before. For one of those reasons, at least. So... We're going to get more into the faults, the cons of the video game industry. This was kind of the pros and the beauty of video games in general. And I don't want you to forget that as we go further in. Because video games are an incredible art form. They employ so many people around the world. And they connect so many communities. Bring diversity. Bring new ways of communicating and and learning with others. They bring forms of rehabilitation for veterans. They bring forms of education for children. They bring forms of entertainment and health management and mental health management for so many people. Of course, it can be abused. Of course, there are sometimes downsides. But these age-old stereotypes of violent video games create school shooters. And, uh, oh, if you play video games, you're hermetically sealed and you're less sociable are absolutely untrue. The only founded piece of research that I have seen proven again and again over time is that uh, consistent and long exposures to extremely violent video games of any kind can increase aggressiveness in behavior, especially when younger children or less developed, uh, mentally developed people are playing it. So it can make people more aggressive temporarily or for a couple months, not permanently. It doesn't make you a violent person, doesn't make you inherently evil. It's the same way when television came out the radio people didn't want it and when radio came out people who um, had other forms of you know books and and mediums didn't want radio and when film came out how television and radio and and all of them didn't want film and film was taboo video game is now that topic right there's always the previous entertainment format and media format saying why do we need this new form it's dangerous for the kids they always say that every 
every fucking time. <laughs> and it turns out it's just fine, right? It may be dangerous. There are things that are dangerous. Social media is more damaging than video games. That's my argument to you. But it always just depends on who the kid is. It, there's so many variables at play. It's not a blanket statement. I can't just say, oh, social media is bad for children. Video games are bad for children. No. Certain video games for certain children in certain households in certain circumstances surrounding them are bad for them. But that's a lot of certainty and uncertainty. So anyway, those are um, just some disclaimers and the brief, um, you know, but overall, the video game industry is a beautiful and booming thing. However, it can be destroyed quickly because it is still in its infancy Adolescence. We'll say it's in its adolescence. We, I think it got through its infancy stage, but it is in its adolescence still compared to other mediums like it or similar to it, I should say. Not, not very like it, but eh, close to. Um, so stick with me and uh, I'll, I'll kind of break down my thoughts and processes on how the video game industry will and could crash. I pray to God it doesn't, but it might, how that will negatively impact the, the industry and the world and how it would, how it could positively impact and what we could do now to possibly change that or make it a lighter crash. So stick around. So I'm recording this segment later than all the other segments, um, because I do go off on a tangent, a good one. That is far more descriptive, in-depth, detailed as a whole, covering the history, the impact, the changes, and the minutiae of the video game industry. Um, so this is a very, very in-depth podcast, one of the most in-depth I've ever done. Sure, it's got its tangents and kind of side routes, but... Hell, if I'm able to play Elden Ring for that long, I'm able to talk about video games as a whole for this long. <laughs> I'm comparing this podcast to the uh, odd nature of Elden Ring's uh, time vacuum. Great game. 10 out of 10. Anyway, moving on. Um, so, the video game industry, where I'm comparing it to the Atari's downfall is in a few regions, but first and foremost, just to note as a disclaimer, I'm not saying it will happen, I'm not saying it has happened, I'm saying it's a possibility, and here's why I think it is um, going further in, right? So, first and foremost, when we look at the Atari's collapse, it's because, A, at the time, Atari was the largest video game creator, publisher, distributor, right? So, sure, there are others, but Atari was the largest for home entertainment, video game consoles so they had a lot of the weight it would kind of be like if it was just sony or just microsoft or just nintendo right um making all of the games and creating all the demand so now we live in a time where the marketplace is much much bigger and more diverse which doesn't put all the weight of the industry on one company and their success right so that's kind of the biggest uh asterisk footnote at the bottom of uh, this entire podcast, right? Because we have other industries. However, other industries copy one another in terms of practices. So when we look at it, the problem with 
what Atari faced is they were making a crap ton of money and they eventually changed their directive from making quality games for the art and the love of video game culture and the industry and started churning out higher quantity over quality in exchange for more dollars faster. Very simple equation. And when anything is done that way, quantity over quality and rushed and prioritized for its monetary value, we face less and less quality. And the thing about video games, unlike a movie, if you dislike a movie, that's okay. And, I mean, if you dislike anything, that's okay. But what I'm getting at is if you dislike a movie and you go to see it in theaters or you go and you rent it on iTunes or you rent it somewhere, you, you pay. You pay up front. Not, I'm not talking streaming. That's another variable. Um, and, you, and you just happen to not like it, but you get through it and you might find some pieces you liked. And, you, you know, it's okay. It's just not what you were hoping or wasn't your favorite. Fine. That's it. You'll probably never see it again unless, like, you think you have to for whatever reason. Or unless, you know, we, you don't go and rewatch or buy movies if you don't like them, right? thing about video games are video games aren't for rent. And they aren't a one-time... They can be. You can play them once, sure. Hey, you technically, in certain areas and systems and uh, things, you can rent them. But 99% of the time in this modern era, you will buy them or download them, but you will buy them. Pre-order, buy it at full price, buy it at a discount, whatever, but you're buying it. And when you buy a game, it comes with two commitments. It comes with the price, which, you know, hopefully you make the right choice and you afford it and you budget it right. And that's hopefully covered. So, um, but more so the time and you can ask any seasoned gamer who's been buying and playing video games for uh, years now, and there is as many um, fuck-ups in your research and in finding out a, figuring out a game that you love and finding that game you love as there is um, successes. However, the successes are always worth it, right? You, you know, in any given year, say you... You buy one game that's on sale, you download one for free on a streaming subscription, and you leave two for the year that you're willing to buy at full $60 price. And you've been doing your research, you've been watching the reviews, but research and reviews, that helps. It helps inform what style of game, it helps inform how to play it, it informs maybe who made it and and the general feedback. If it's online, how many people are playing it, the bugs, it, it really can inform you a lot to make you aware of your purchase and watching the videos and learning about the gameplay mechanics and and maybe like what a honest review from someone saying oh this is what it's really about though don't worry about the trailers and the cover art that you think it's a shooter it's not it's actually a melee melee action game or you know what i mean whatever it may be because advertising can deceive you they often do so you do your research you know you spend your time you think about it you save up your money and you're like okay i'm ready and you make the the purchase and Let's go on the theory that even if it's digital, you don't have the chance to refund it. Usually you do nowadays, which is great, in the first 14 days or certain hours of putting in playtime. It's usually not enough time because video games aren't like movies. You can't just get through them in a two-hour sitting. You have to, um, you know, my rule of thumb is 10 to 20 hours in a game 
gets you a sufficient amount beyond the gameplay loop. It gets you an idea of the gameplay loop. It gets you uh, an idea of the expanded mechanics. And it gets you a, a small taste of, of what's to come if it's a larger game. 30 to 40 hours for a real big game. I'm about 90 hours in Elden Ring. I don't know all that's to come in that game still. In terms of enemy variety, weapons, and location variety. But for the gameplay loop, I pretty much have figured out to the build I have right now. To this melee samurai build I have. But that game is one out of a million. It's extremely rare how diverse and how complex but yet engaging that game is. But for other games, I can't say that's always the case. So, you know. But I, I'd like to, any game I purchase or really download and really want to get into, I minimum 10 to 20 hours over the course of however many months I, I can divvy that up to, right? Now, I game daily, so it's easier for me. But for other people, that investment is risky. My point is, we do our research, but sometimes we mess up and we miss and there's some buyer's remorse. There's some, ah, uh, that sucks. That's just sitting in my library and I liked it for, or you liked it for a month or two and then you kind of lost interest or got distracted by something else. It happens. But more and more, developers are creating games faster with less quality to turn profits. But as we have seen time and time again, the better the quality of the game, the more the people will play, the more they will love it, the more the game will sell, and the longer it will be played for. People forget, like, the sales are really important. It's kind of what keeps the devs afloat and keeps the support for the game, sure. But after those initial month sales, then they look at just quarterly how many sales they get and, or whatever, whatever the metric may be for that particular game or studio or franchise. But then what they're also looking at is how many fucking people are playing their game. Because that dictates to the devs how much, how, how much more support do they need to continuously keep going. If it's a game like Elden Ring right now that just on Steam alone, not counting the consoles that it's having major success on... Um, it had 400,000 concurrent players at fucking noon yesterday on a Wednesday, right? Not after hours, not after work, during work at noon. I'm on spring break, so I just checked it out. 400,000 concurrent players. It has a rough, nearly 1 million people have downloaded it on Steam that I can tell. That's a lot. That's a lot of people buying into a game that is actually... A more from a studio that has a less broad reach to the to the masses because of its style of game and, and its difficulty and, and some of the um, design choices, right? And yet we're seeing the success. The question is, in a month, will people keep playing? Because you've got your big from software fans; they're blazing through this game in the first month already, like myself. I'm not saying I'm going to complete it anytime soon, and I really want to enjoy it and explore it. I'm not rushing through it, but there are people who've already beat it multiple times. But the game is elaborate enough and complex enough, you will miss things on your first go-through. So that the question now, since this isn't a live online multiplayer service game, is will they add new content? Will they add features? What will change, Right? But that's a quality game. 
people are going to keep playing it for years to come, kind of like Skyrim. Regardless of Skyrim, Skyrim's re-releases and DLCs and updates, Skyrim was, was a quality game. It was groundbreaking for the time people wanted to play it and came back to it. Call of Duty? The only Call of Duty I could think of that can stand on its legs for more than one year, year and a half, is Modern Warfare 2019 of recent CODs. Not of all time, just of, from, you know, 2015 and up. 2015 and up. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2019 is the only COD I can personally think of and generally think of that has the quality, the replay value, the design, the core, and the player base when it initially launched and the success that if they didn't release another COD, it could have kept going for at least two to three years. I don't think it would have been... I mean, they could have pulled a rainbow and just kept it at that, but they wouldn't. But with Call of Duty and these sports games, you expect that annualized drop, so you're not even investing time, but you're still investing $60. So it's that balance. Some companies don't care how much time you put in their game. They just care if you pay up front. And that's the problem. I think that's one of the things that makes it different for this industry. The quality assurance check is very low bar. Look at Cyberpunk. Eight years of development. It came out so broken that the stores had to... Sony and Microsoft stores had to offer refunds. Which is crazy because they do quality check assurances, but they usually don't worry about a big studio and like uh, CD Projekt Red fucking up that badly. So we live in a time where the quality of a game is vastly decreased and I don't just mean be from technical standpoints of crashes, frame stuttering uh, bugs that's one massive issue the other massive issue is the actual quality of the game the level designs, the enemy designs if there are enemies the, the dialogue or voice acting, the graphics, the engine that it's built on a lot of these things are recycled, reused or reduced to save costs on the production front and to make it be uh, shipped faster. Quality is cut so they can have it ready by holiday of the following year or have it ready in the initial time frame they set a few years ago. And it's that balance because hype also is a bitch and it's an engine that can drive a game to mass popularity from just just to initial price point but of course i mean look at elden ring elden ring is a great game right and i keep using it as example because i've been playing it's fresh on my mind it's fresh on everyone's mind it's shook up the industry and it's it's changed it has changed the way open world games will be made in in some regards mechanically i think it will change enough of uh, developers thoughts on how to make a good open world game but regardless of any of that um, they could have shipped a shitty, broken product. They delayed it once or twice, just slightly, by a few months for some polishing, I believe. But they could have shipped a broken product or a less polished product. I'm not saying it's perfect. It does need a few polishes, but they're keeping update patches coming through. Um, but they could have shipped it broken. They could have shipped it lacking it, not being actually what they promised. Doesn't matter. The expectation and hype engine that was already created would have had enough people bought in that they would have probably made their money back and then some. So they take their money and go. 
They don't have to support it. I mean, they probably do contractually. They're probably obligated to some extent, but not that much. The main work is done, building the damn game and releasing it. Right? So these are some aspects that really do hurt the industry. These scheming monetization practices, this quantity over quality, and the nature of not listening to the fan base. We have the modern technology of directly communicating with the devs, devs being able to see it, and then on top of that, them being able to immediately fix the game's issues, bugs and glitches and such, and or add new features when they have uh, made new features to expand the game. If it's a game that they want to keep in service for a long time, such as Rainbow Six. Yet we're still at crossroads where these industry, these big, big gaming publishers and developers, there's only a handful of them, still are stuck on the trends that made a shit ton of money quickly, like Battle Royale. Perfectly fine franchise to, to do, but Ubisoft is trying to make Ghost Recon Frontline, Frontlines a free-to-play Battle Royale game. They're three years too late, and they're shitting on a franchise that people will actually pay good money for to see return to its former self as a slower, tactical action, third-person shooter to play with friends. That's what Ghost Recon's known for. Rainbow Six Siege. Rainbow Six is also much like Ghost Recon. was a third-person tactical realism-ish game. And Rainbow Six Siege promised that it would be that, but online. And it was for the first year, year and a half. And it slowly has become a little more sci-fi. But it still keeps its core gameplay. And it is more tactically based. And it is very fun. My point being, they will ditch whatever, whatever promises or whatever the previous franchise has set in place for the sake of monetary gain. It's the reason why we haven't seen a Splinter Cell game. And the idea of single-player games or the idea of slower tactical games scares big names and publishers because, because it takes a lot to make them, right? And they don't want to risk losing the market on consoles. PC, PC is a little more flexible, usually older as well, so they're more mature to handling slower-based games. But, um, but no, when they're designing games for consoles they want to they don't want to risk that they would much rather play it close to the chest than be another Call of Duty another Battlefield another Fortnite another Madden than do something new and original and that is the threat we face the lack of originality the rush the quality assurance um, is just not there and all these big gaming publishers and industries that really keep the industry financially alive and has control of many of our most beloved franchises forget the identity of these franchises they set up years ago, 10, 15 years ago. And some of them don't, right? But, but I'm just saying the more grim side of things. So what takes it to crash when people finally realize and they're tired of paying into it. Now we have streaming services that kind of lightens the blow and more free-to-play games, so it's not that all video games will crash and won't be playable and it won't work and no one can play video games anymore, but I could see EA and Ubisoft especially 
Activision Blizzard's changing because of Microsoft's acquisition, so that's one thing. But U- Ubisoft, EA, and every other big uh, corporation, Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo, but more so the ones that don't make consoles and don't have other assets, they're, um, they're going to hit some very low points in the coming years, as they did in 2016 and 2017. And they're going to need to figure out how to redefine themselves and not temporarily as a core structural way of making video games and making and rebuilding the trust in their player base because everyone now expects that the biggest money behind video games and the biggest publishers and distributors will ship the most mundane, cut and paste, dry, recycled, broken games. There's a few devs and a few publishers that break through this, but for the most part, AA studios are really taking the helm of making quality games. And so what's going to happen is either two things, in my opinion. A, if people really do reduce their play, plays, uh, you know, their time and their money in these big franchises, which they won't too much, but if they do enough, either they'll pivot and actually go back to the roots like they did with Modern Warfare 2019 or what they say they're doing with the new Assassin's Creed and all these other things, or if they don't evolve fast enough, they'll die. And I don't mean they'll go away permanently, but their power will be slipped and a smaller studio will rise, make something original, make something everyone loves, and then they'll become their own thing. Just look at Minecraft. Completely out of left field. I know it was in 2010, but still... Look at the games that were out then. Black Ops just came out, right? COD was at its greatest peak. Battlefield 3 was, I think, just came out around that time. Um, I mean, some titans of the industry were really slugging it out. Halo Reach just came out. And a bunch of other games few and far between. I think God of War. I don't play God of War, but I believe it came out right around then. My point is that there are a lot of big hitters that defined a generation in 2010 and Little Old Minecraft came along and is one of the most profitable games of all time. So these are some things to look at, to know, to take note of. And hopefully, hopefully, if these companies do collapse and if the video game industry does hit a lull, Hopefully it will spawn new creators, new ideas, and new games and franchises that we all love and or redefine the ones that we've loved before. So that's my general comparisons and thoughts to the fall of the video game industry. I could make an entire new podcast going more in-depth on the video game industry, but I'm just doing it right here. So the following segments are way more in-depth overview and detailed looks at the video game industry, the trends, and kind of just supporting my entire thesis of the quality over content, or content over quality, I should say, um, the, the monetization policies and all the other woes that can bring the video game industry down, um, as we know it, the modern gaming industry, or make it change rapidly. So everything else is more detailed to kind of support the point I just made, um, So yeah, stick around and enjoy. Thank you. 
Okay. I appreciate everybody who's come by. Um, got a lot uh, of content coming down the pipeline, so I'm excited for you all to see that. And I appreciate everybody who comes by and watches my Twitch streams. I uh, Twitch stream at Psychic Gamer, P S Y, K I C K G A M E R, capital P, capital K, capital G, all one word. So, please check out my Twitch streams if you ever want to. I'm currently got in rotation Elden Ring, which is dope. Definitely get it if you're interested. Uh, Rainbow Six Siege, which is back in full swing, and Rocket League, and a handful of other games that I'm cycling through. So come check out there if you want to see uh, how I actually play video games, because <laughs> I talk a lot about them. You'd think maybe I know how to play them. So um, the industry could and probably will crash as all things go up must come down, right? It's that kind of theory. We are in a massive boom, regardless of the issues that are sprouting up, and they are big that need to be fixed immediately or soon. Um, the thing is that um, we have, in the past decade, but especially the past five years, as the industry shifts and changes and, and flows and ebbs and ebbs and flows, if you will, more money towards these games change. The way they're funded, the way they're purchased. Back in the day, when you bought a game, it was physical, and it was quite pricey. It's always been expensive. Almost three to four times more expensive than buying a DVD, and even more so than from buying a book. Right? So, depending on the book, of course. So, um... And that doesn't even consider the hardware requirements. You know, if you want the cheapest, simplest, most uh, affordable, but also most consistent and easy to just plug and play, and you bought a console from any brand, Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo, and Sega, whatever, wherever, whatever, at any point, that was a couple hundred dollars or more up front. If you wanted to build your own PC. Now, usually PCs are different because they're more versatile. So you use them for work. You can use them for, you know, other things. I'm a filmmaker, so I use my PC for video editing. I use mine for work. I use mine for school. And, of course, I use mine for gaming. So, you know, to each their own, however you want to scale that up, that's more customizable. But that's still an expensive endeavor. And anybody who says, oh, it can be cheap, yeah, sure. But if you want to play video games at a very, very standard rate nowadays... It's, it's pricey, but it is more flexible and it is more powerful and it lasts much, much longer and is more modular. And it's a different marketplace and all these other things. It's, it's not that one is inherently better than the other. I have an Xbox. I have a PC. I had a PS3 back in the day. I have an Oculus. I've played all kinds of video games in my life. I've played all kinds of systems. And I'll say they're all different and they're all better for certain reasons than others. Xbox is powerful. It's very streamlined. It simplifies things so there's no headaches. You really do plug and play. It does cover all the other medias. If you want to watch TV, if you want to watch a DVD, if you have a DVD player, one of the, you know, there is an Xbox digital version, all digital version. But if you have a disk drive, you know, um, it's easy to manage. It's easy to keep up with. Um, 
and it's and it's simply fun right pc is is more complicated in the sense that not just in if you built it or if you have a part malfunction it's not rocket science it's just another step but it's also um figuring out how to use it for whatever purpose you want and how to switch and when there is optimization issues because it covers such a wide spectrum there isn't a quality check see when every game nowadays i'm just talking present time i'm talking modern times from 2016 up um and especially in these past 2 to 3 years um when when you're looking at like a game a new game let's say a 60 dollar game which is the average standard price of a video game across the board of a new release at full price retail value okay let's say you buy that game on two different systems let's say you buy one on xbox or playstation either one they're pretty much very similar in their architecture and you buy one on the same game on pc so i have an xbox i have a pc so i'll use this for an example if i bought one game on my pc um halo halo infinite it's free to play so it's a little different but the halo infinite multiplayer on my pc compared to my xbox is two entirely different experiences and just so you all know for those who who know pcs or who are interested i have a pretty powerful pretty beefy pc mine was a pre-built because a there were no parts and i wanted a pc going into college for video editing for college work for keeping it all in one place um and for gaming i wanted to expand my gaming uh apparatus since i am such a fan of it <laughs> um i have a uh 3070 uh um and a what is it amd ryzen 5 5600 cpu uh you know i've got 32 gigabytes of ram one terabyte storage i need to upgrade at some point and a pretty cool new air fill uh um air cooler for my cpu my my liquid cooler was defective, but I got a pretty dope one. So it's a beefy guy. It's about 16, 18 pounds, and it, it's very powerful. There's nothing it can't run. You know, it's a 3070 with a, a pretty, pretty high um, CPU. It's not the most powerful PC, but it's definitely upper range. So... I paid a little more of a premium because of that, and I paid a little more of a premium because it was pre-built and shipped, and I paid a little more of a premium because these parts are hard to get. However, the premium, I, I mean, it would have cost more if I bought these individual pieces and built it myself anyway, and um, logically, I could figure out how to build it after some research and trial and error, but physically... I struggle tying my shoes, so I think I would I think I would struggle building a PC, so less headache as well in that regard. So that's my setup, just so you guys know, because it really does ebb and flow and fluctuate. If if I say I'm playing on a PC and I'm playing on a 1080, uh, that's a different PC experience, right? And so I wanted to put that as a disclaimer. I'm not flexing. I'm not saying, oh, I know, I mean, no, none of that. I don't care what you have. Um, we're all equal in my eyes. If you're a gamer, you're a gamer. If you're a human, you're a human. I don't care. I don't even care if you game. I would assume you do if you're listening to this, but if you don't, I don't really care. But I'm just saying that for those who know, 
so you know what I'm working with when I'm comparing this. But my point is that when I'm playing a game like Halo Infinite, you would think that runs like a dream on my on my PC. And it could be an issue that I'm not aware of. Um, these things actually do are, are common right now because they're not optimized properly. It runs so much better on my console, even though on my console it can't run at 120 frames or more. And anything running at 120 frames is so much smoother and more responsive. And having a mouse and keyboard does allow a little more modular and, and flexibility and better for aiming in, in certain circumstances. Um, but that doesn't matter because my frame rate is so inconsistent and cannot stay... Um, consistent it can stay high but it doesn't matter in a first person shooter like halo if my frame rate oh sure it can hit 120 but it consistently stays between 100 and 120 so a 20 frame rate drop every few seconds is fucking infuriating and then especially when i get into the menu now i fixed some of my settings so when i'm in the menu it's only 60 frames that's no problem and some other things that made it way more smoother but even then i have to take out the xbox game bar overlay i have to turn that off the problem with that is when i'm playing halo i am playing with my friends on xbox i kind of want to know how to i kind of want to access the game bar so i can get in the party chat or if i want to record a clip it's very funny to me that something as powerful as my pc can't somehow operate a game bar in the background while running Halo. Now, I'm not a computer engineer. I don't understand these things, so there is probably something there that I'm completely missing, or I could be completely off and I am just don't have my settings right. I don't know, but I, uh, I do know how to set computers. I'm, I'm quite technically proficient. I'm usually tech support for my family and friends, so that's, uh, that's just one issue, right? It's not for every game. It's purely just for Halo. I swear to God, they just have bad optimization because I have many friends and other people who I know who have reported the same kinds of issues. Funny, because the PC Windows is Microsoft and you would think they would get that down. But anyway, my point is that um, that's just one example. And that's a very new game. It came out in the past six months. So, um... So there's that, and then also crossplay. Crossplay is very limited, so if I want to play with my friends, most of them don't have a PC, then I have to play my Xbox, which I don't mind. My point is, I, I went off on a long tangent. I didn't mean to get that far off, but my point is that these optimizations and these changes um, can really change someone's experience. But at the end of the day, you do have these different consoles and these different choices, and it's expensive. The price point is pricey. To get into gaming, it's expensive. But it's not the end of the world. If that's what you like to do and you don't go out and drink at bars or go on long trips or fly around the world as much, especially right now, um, I'd love to fly around the world at some point. But you know what I mean? You know, you, you save costs somewhere else if you want to invest in this uh, hobby. In, the, in this, uh, you know, in this way of socialization. And for me, personally, moving around as much as I do, and then in a time of COVID and quarantine and closing down and all that, but mostly because I move around a lot. This, you know, I've, everywhere I've lived, I've usually moved within three years. That makes it really hard to keep consistent friends in your area to hang out with. 
and I'm not a social butterfly. I don't just kick down the door and say, here I am, world, come befriend me. No, no, no. I'm a good, I'm good at befriending people via online. It is a way of communicating via text and via voice messages and online and game chat. I am better and more proficient at that because ever since I was little, that's how I had to learn how to do it. Not that I can't socialize if I meet you in person. Don't get me wrong. I wouldn't be like, wait, how do I do this? But I, it just ebbs and flows and clicks more when I'm online. Right? So there are things to it that make people personally more invested or, and, um, and it changes. But all in all, the industry is very much the same. You still have to buy a console that can run the games. There is cost to it. But here's the difference. The hardware costs will always relatively be pricey at first. Hopefully the hardware improves to the point where you don't need to buy them as often. It seems like that's happening anyway. And there is some more options from the con. It's not just one console for a decade. It is, or, for, or worse, one console every four years. It is one to two to three variations of the console for different price points that cover different reasons but still cover the main base objective. And... Um, and props where props are due. These consoles are very, very powerful. Like the PS5 and the Xbox Series X. Everyone's like, it's rivaling PC. It's not rivaling PC at all. But I will say it is extremely powerful because it has an SSD now, thank God. Solid state drive for those who don't know. That's microchip based um, drive to, to store data, to pool data. Um, it runs, it reads and writes at much faster speeds. And it also... Um, it also is safer. So it's faster, and it's also safer from damage because a hard drive disk is slower at read and write speeds, and it used to be a standard, because it's literally a spinning disk in there with a needle on it that's reading and writing. There are a surprising amount of people who don't understand how that works, an HDD compared to an SDD, SSD. Yeah, HDD and SSD, hard data drive. I don't know. I don't remember what HDD stands for. But um, my point is, that's just one technological change in these new consoles. That's incredible. It makes a big difference. It makes everything more streamlined and optimized. But the quality assurance check is what I was getting at. When you buy a game through the Microsoft Store, through the Sony PlayStation Store, through the Nintendo Store, it goes not only through quality check of the game developers and the publishers, it also goes through quality check, to some extent, of the store distributor, Microsoft, Sony, whatever. It's more restrictive, however. It's far more restrictive, right? It's kind of like how Apple curates their Apple Store. So, yes, there's you're not going to run into a chance of something that's so broken or so unplayable uh, unless it's a big publisher, and that's a new new issue we're facing nowadays that I'll get into later. Um, but my point is, like, there can't just be any Joe Schmo that animates uh, simple uh, 3D animation with a guy with a gun and runs around and calls the FPS game and sells it for two bucks online. You're not going to get that kind of game. You're going to get fully finished products. Right, Even if they're small scale, like an indie game. So there's differences like that. There's more safety to the consumer. Right, But when you're older or when you're more experienced and technically literate, that's the other thing. You have to know technology enough to be competent 
PC's great. PC's great, and it adds adds more horsepower and adds more flexibility to to your games. And I really do like it for that. I only wish that my friends had I had more friends with it because the games that I want to play um, now, usually when I play video games, it's often with my friends. Very rarely is it by myself. And if it is, that's fine. I have I have that choice and freedom. So that's why I wish more games were crossplay. So it doesn't matter what consoles you have, and we're seeing that more and more. But we need more. We need games that are already popular to go into crossplay. We need games that are that start with cross progression as well. I mean, at least start at that. You know, and some people say, here's something that always bothers me. There are people who are like, well, crossplay wouldn't work because we're a competitive PvP game, player versus player, and we don't want people on PC who may have the upper hand because of the fact that they're running at a higher frame rate and they have a mouse and keyboard. So especially in first-person shooters, that does give you the upper hand if you're seasoned with a PC, right? It just inherently can. That does not mean you will not get smoked by someone on a controller. And this is something that I do not fucking understand for the life of me. I get it. It is unfair from a technical hardware perspective. And you have to find a way to either balance it or have control over that. Absolutely. Because you don't want someone on console who's new to the game or who's new to console or who doesn't play the game as much to go up against someone who is very experienced, plays the game a lot, and knows how to play it on PC. They will lose nine times out of ten. Right? That's not fun. That's broken. I get that. But here's the thing. First off, it's not exclusively the case. In fact, the people who are on console could whoop someone's ass on PC. I have seen it. I've seen cross-play competitive multiplayer games, and I have seen how people with a controller know how to keep up with someone on a mouse and keyboard at a higher frame rate. Because A, the game's latency still keeps it equal. They're not moving faster than you are. They're, they're just, things are more fluid. It's easier on the eyes, essentially things process faster in terms of the frame rate but that doesn't it's it's more smooth and fluid but it doesn't mean they're moving literally faster in game so it's that that's one thing that i never get people act like if you have a higher frame rate you will inherently be faster no <laughs> it's just smoother that's not how frame rate works it doesn't make the character faster in a game right it might make your reaction time a little quicker on the pull. And that's why in competitive FPSs there is a difference. Because because things are delivered, the messages, the information on screen is running at a higher frame rate. You're seeing it smoother and faster by like a millisecond. So it can make a difference. I'm not saying it doesn't. But people act like, oh, it makes you inherently faster. No. And that is if you know how to react on, on time. So it depends on the person's comfort. Depends on the skill and it depends on the game. You know what I mean? But here's the solution to that. A toggle switch. Make it cross-play if you can afford it with the hardware, depending on the publisher, depending on the game, if it doesn't break the game, if it can be well-optimized. Make it cross-play and have it be a toggle switch. So if someone is on console and make it be known that they can toggle it on and off. Don't just have it in a hidden feature somewhere locked weighed down in settings that no one would find. Make it available and accessible. Make it be known. Or, if it's a game that has modes that isn't player versus player, but player versus enemy type versus the computer, have those game modes at least be cross-play. But there are ways around this so you can still have a game have 
functionality to play with other people on different consoles, regardless of the console wars, regardless of all that. Some games do it. Like Rainbow Six Siege doesn't have crossplay, will have crossplay between PC and PlayStation, or I'm sorry, Xbox and PlayStation because they're on controllers, but they refuse to allow PC to intermingle. I don't get that. Call of Duty is has one of the most competitive scenes in multiplayer games. Um, Rainbow Six is far more competitive game in its style and delivery but it doesn't mean it you know my point is have it a toggle switch so if my buddy on xbox wants to play with pc people wants to play crossplay and run that risk he can switch it on and if he's getting his ass handed to him by pc people and maybe have a little icon that shows what console people are on, like other crossplay games do in multiplayer settings, then he knows, okay, this is a squad of three out of five PC people. I am not good enough right now, not competent enough, whatever, or they're just too good at this, right? And Rainbow's been out long enough, and it is popular enough on PC where it could be that all the time. And so maybe in their mind, they're just thinking, well, they'll just, even if we made it to toggle switch, I don't know if that's possible, but even if they did, we'd have that bit, they'd have that bitch switched off all the time. But if they have the resources and they could do it and it doesn't break the game, I don't see why not. The best games give uh, players the option and freedom to figure out how to play the game, right? Within the gameplay itself. Oh, there's a challenge, there's a puzzle, there's something to figure out. It lets them, gives them the tools, lets them know what the tools are, and then lets them figure it out on their own. That's the mess, best way of rewarding progression and learning. However, beyond the gameplay, they also allow that in its settings, features, and accessibility. That's why Elden Ring is so successful. Because in its gameplay design, and in some of its control schemes, it is designed to allow you to have a little more freedom and flexibility in figuring stuff out. It doesn't make it easier. It makes it more inviting for people who've never touched these kinds of games so they can learn how to get into the kind of style that From Software makes. So there are price point differences in the hardware. And there are things that come with that baggage that comes with what you invest in and you have to do some research. You have to figure out what you want. I'm not going to talk about exclusive games and like, oh, play da, ba, da, they have these games. Da, ba, da. At the end of the day, 99% of all these games I hear or 95% of these games aren't exclusive to certain consoles. And if they are exclusive, it's usually exclusive to PC for two reasons. Because the marketplace and or because of the physicality of it, the actual hardware that it requires to run or the fact that you kind of have to have a mouse and keyboard. Because a game developer would not optimize a game to be on console for two reasons. If A, they don't think it'll sell on console because of the type of game, and the, it's just not what console players would buy, so putting in the extra work, money, and effort to market it there would be a loss uh, instead of just focusing on making it better on the consoles already on. And then also, if it literally just is too much to optimize to a controller and makes it puts the players on console at a deficit. However, now that I have played PC and Xbox, I can say, yes, there's 
far more flexibility in its customization and control schemes on PC. But honest to God, honestly, other than WASD, which I use to move, and maybe one or th two to three other buttons on my keyboard that I use for pulling up the menu, pulling up a map, maybe switching an item, and then the mouse. The mouse's function uses as a head turn as shooting or as the main action and then I have two side buttons on my mouse so yeah there's a there's a lot of play there but I one time counted up the buttons it's like two to five give or take depending on the game button difference and usually by that point it's for certain things that really aren't essential to the core gameplay it's just it helps it makes it easier maybe so you know just in my mind I'm like you guys can figure it out I mean, look at all these games that have scroll wheels and menu items. and I mean, there are ways around it. It's just more work. So is it worth the work? That's when they figure out how to optimize and, and share. The only reason why I talk about this, and, and this does lead into the fall of the video game industry, is because now that we're more online than ever, now that we have friends who have different consoles for whatever reason, personal preference, understanding of their ecosystem, um, already invested in their ecosystem, price point, um, or the parents just bought the wrong thing and they're stuck with it, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter. But my point is, now that we have more people with different diversities in how they play and where they play, the games and the systems involved in that play need to accommodate for this online experience. Games that stay alive for, specifically for online multiplayer games, not single-player games, the, the games that stay alive the longest are the ones that figure out that the end of the day community matters first and yeah the features and improvements and all that is key but what else is key is updating so the community and social aspect experience improves with time and with technology and it's something that the industry is so fucking slow on they're going to kill themselves because of it so let's get in more to the actual cons of the industry from a larger scale. I was just kind of setting up what I was getting into, kind of breaking down the differences between hardware, between software, between games, between price points to some extent, and between some of the issues of socialization between these devices. Um, because this is gonna, this will introduce a larger structural error that will come up more and more as we see the video game industry evolve. Stay tuned. So I went off a little, uh, I went on a little tangent there. I apologize. This, uh, this topic is very meaty. This is something I could talk about for six hours. I'm going to try to keep it under two hours for sure. I don't like when my podcasts are like 90 minutes. I don't like people. I don't want, I don't want you guys to think, what a pretentious fucker. Thinking he could talk for 90 minutes about something and not be an actual trained professional. No, I'm just giving my opinions. Uh, and, you know, I've got all the research and these data points, and I really care about this topic, and I think about it a lot. Why the hell would I just keep it up in my head when I can try to find a way to at least inform those who are interested or entertain them to some extent? And that's why I do these. No other reason. It's not to preach. It's to just share the knowledge, because why, why does it need to be stuck in my head? Right? It's also to reduce the the possibility of annoying the shit out of my friends and family because my autistic ass, once again, I am autistic, so I'm not making fun of autistic people. My autistic ass will go on a long loop and just spew, you know, <laughs> just info dump because I just do. I don't realize that people don't always want to hear it 
and I enjoy talking about it. And people put on masks, I don't. But people put on masks so they come off as interested in it. And they're not. And I only realize that after the fact. And that is the worst feeling ever when socializing. When you're talking about something you're interested in, passionate about, and someone is making themselves seem like they care. And in reality, you realize after the fact they really didn't. They were just kind of placating your, your tangents. It's the worst feeling. So that's why I do this here. Because it's an optional experience and it allows me to get it out. Anyway, back to the topic at hand, the video game industry and the potential, the pros, the cons, and the reason why it could fall and the reason why we shouldn't let it, and if it does, why it could be good. So, we got through the hardware, the software, the history of the video game crash before. Now let's get into the reality of the modern video game industry crashing. It's high. It's very fucking high, and it's been teetering for the past five years. It's a scary level high. There is one thing that has delayed its crash and has actually changed a lot of things in a good way and some things in a bad way and has made me realize that it just prolonged a crash that might come down a little harder now. Fortnite. I talk about Fortnite a lot. I don't play it anymore. Um, they did remove building, which is kind of interesting. But my point is, um, Fortnite did something that PUBG was trying to do but didn't do it as well. They introduced a new genre of gaming, a subgenre of shooter online games that's not the bigger part yeah battle royale is massive that's what everyone sees that's not what i see when i look at fortnite fortnite was smart fortnite was originally a pve game four player two to four player co-op game this is where it got its name you're building forts protecting your town from zombies invading same mechanics as the battle royale that game was a $40 price game in 2017, released in like June or July. I saw it come out. I was super, super bored. I was filming a lot. I was doing some Twitch streaming, and I was looking for my next game to get into. Um, by the way, when you meet a gamer, a true gamer, or an obsessive person like myself, I'm always looking for the next game. It doesn't mean I ignore the games I have. I love all the games I have for different reasons, and I'll play them. And usually I like to sink enough time where it makes my purchase point for me personally... I have my own metric. Worth it. Some games, I miss. I fuck up on my research and I realize, oh, this is fun for 10 hours. It's a, it's a gamble every time you invest in a game. And nowadays, and I'll get into this in a minute, it's, a, it's just as much a gamble on your time as it is your price, your wallet. So anyway, Fortnite did something that I realized was unique. I was bored. I was looking for a game. Tremendously bored that summer. I don't know why. But I was just looking for new games, and I realized, yeah, the summer is kind of a drought for games. It's usually fall, you know, holiday season. That's when new games come out. Summer's kind of a dry area. Really smart if you're an indie dev to drop a game in the summer. Because I guarantee you people are just waiting for the next thing. And if you make it accessible, you got them. So Fortnite came out, $40. No fucking way I was buying that game. I saw it. It wasn't quite for me. It looked interesting. And 40 isn't $60, so I was like, eh. But eh, it's just not my style, okay? However, they did start to advertise a free-to-play mode for this Fortnite. It was in beta at the time. I was one of the first people that downloaded Fortnite. Proud to say that. And I played it for a little while, and I actually got into it. I liked it. Wasn't quite me. I was playing Rainbow Six at the time. I prefer those kinds of games. 
Um, so Fortnite wasn't really my style, and it still isn't. But I'm not knocking it. People like it. I understand. There are things that I dislike about it that I don't think are good for the gaming culture or for pop culture, but that's okay. That's one issue. But here's what Fortnite did that I realized when it started to blow up in popularity. Even when I stopped playing it in the first couple months. You know, I played it for a few hours um, that first day, and then I played it maybe once or twice a week uh, over that summer. And then it started to blow up by fall, and by 2018 it was getting real popular. By summer of 2018, it was the biggest thing ever. You know, Ninja started playing it. That's when all that happened. But, um, and I really stopped playing it by that time. Like, very rarely. I had other games and interests. So, anyway, it's okay. I mean, I, I'm not too worried about that. But what I did notice is that, A, it was free. Very smart of them. And as I was playing, I'm like, I know it's in beta, but if this goes free to play fully, there's not many good free to play games out there. There are two or three solid ones. And they're very niche and they're hard to get into sometimes. But for the most part, free-to-play games are... They come with a lack of quality and a lack of replayability. So back in that time, which I know feels like forever ago now. Jeez. But back then, the idea of a free-to-play game being sufficient enough to replace a $60 game was unheard of. You know, you had to really be dedicated to that specific game and really get into it. And, of course, I'm not saying that there weren't those games. There were exceptions. But for, in general, most people thought, okay, I mean, that's cool. It's a free-to-play game. I'm going to sink a couple hours in every once in a while. Well, I'm going to go back to my $60 game, whatever it may be, right? Fortnite was smarter. Fortnite was like, no, people are playing our mode. We need to make this an actual full-fledged game. We need to make it when you download it. Everyone is playing a full-scale quality game. As if they paid us $40, $20, $60, whatever. And we need to make it accessible for all ages and accessible on every single platform we can put it on. I don't know if that was a dev team. I don't know if that was just Epic Games. I don't know the process of figuring that out, but I know they figured it out really fucking quickly. I mean, within a year, the game was already... The beta tag was ripped off. It was in full swing. It worked beautifully. It There were hardly any glitches, hardly any crashes. It ran smoothly. It was full integrated crossplay. I mean so fully integrated crossplay that someone playing on their fucking iPhone could play with somebody on an Xbox. And it was a fun and well-made game for that. It worked. It ran smoothly. It had a good gameplay loop. It was fun. And it was cross-play. And it was available to all ages. That's why it's so damn successful. If it was missing any one of those elements, it would still be popular. It just wouldn't be as popular. And, you know, it's getting older now. People are used to it. People still play it a lot. It's a go-to game. Especially for kids. So, um, but it's not a kid's game either. It's many adults play it. So my point is, it changed the industry because A, it's a free-to-play game that brought in a billion dollars to Epic Games over the course of a few years, which fucking scared everybody. Like, how did you just make a free-to-play game make more money than all of our $60 games combined? Right? Well, it had microtransactions. 
but that was all cosmetic. What it did is it made the gameplay, the progression, the systems free and accessible and fun, and they worked. And it got people so hooked and in love with the game that they wanted to rep and be different. And it became kind of taboo after a few years to have a default skin. So people buy into customizations. They buy into the battle pass. And at the same time, in the same year that Fortnite's Battle Royale mode dropped, Battlefront 2 on the other side did a colossal fuck-up that helped propel the change of this industry. Don't fuck up Star Wars. If anyone's ever creatively involved at the helm of Star Wars, do not fuck it up if you can help it. It's hard to know if you're gonna fuck it up. I get that. I would be scared shitless if I had to direct a Star Wars film. I'd be in love and I'd be the happiest human alive, but I'd also be scared shitless. Uh, It's a lot of pressure on someone's shoulders. You don't want to piss off that fan base. However, the Battlefront, the first of the new Battlefront games by EA was okay. Sound design was phenomenal. Graphics were out of this world. Gameplay was okay. It was kind of fun. But it was limited not just because it had functionality issues. It was limited because it had four fucking maps. (laughs) Added Jakku later. Who gives a shit? Um, For a Star Wars game, that's surprisingly stupid to do. Uh, just focus on the original trilogy, really. Anyway, so Battlefront 2. They said, okay, we heard you. We got, you can now, through battle points, it's not just a timed token. You can now in-game earn to unlock a hero. Luke Skywalker or a villain, Darth Vader. And you can get a more powerful elite trooper, a battle droid or a, a fucking uh, clone trooper or whatever. We're introducing all three eras, prequel, uh, original, and new trilogy, and they all intermix. And we're adding a bajillion maps. There's like 28 maps at launch or more. And they're all unique for different reasons. And a bunch of different game modes. And, you know, of course, graphics and gameplay improvements and all that. If there were to ever be a multiplayer modern Star Wars game that's a, you know, traditional first-person arena shooter, or first-person shooter, this was that game. It had every element. It had the, the, the financier backing it as EA. It had the reputable um, uh, company of DICE at the helm. Right? DICE made it. Or my trip. Yeah, DICE made it. Um, they're pretty good at making games. You know, they made a little thing called Battlefield. And, um, and it was, you know, it had all the original IP and everything. From sound to, they did photo scans. I mean, it's incredible. Still, to this day, when you play it, there's not many other Star Wars games that really pull you into Star Wars like this game does. It had two, two critical failures in its thing. And one of them actually stopped the momentum from the other one being improved. Microtransactions that dramatically damaged the progress of a game and unbalanced everything. Still hurts to talk about this. We all know this story now. Most downvoted Reddit post in history was from a Star Wars Battlefront 2 dev, right? I mean, this shit got out of hand quickly. People were excited. When you have Star Wars, you're banking, you already have too many people invested to begin with. 
We have people who are going to buy it for that name right. Um, I don't think I actually purchased it when it first came out because I, I saw the signs. I might have, but I, I don't think I did, actually. I think I stayed clear, waited till it was on sale. The microtransactions made it so, A, these star cards, your power-ups to your abilities and such, you could buy them. You could buy them in loot boxes that were randomized, so A, you're gambling. And then also, on, beyond that, um, you're, if you gamble enough, if you put a lot of money into it, you will be inherently more powerful than anyone else who's putting time in. So it just instantly broke up the multiplayer game format because it was so unbalanced that people who had 20 extra dollars was just going to be more powerful at all times. It would take hundreds of hours for someone else to catch up. And the gameplay loop, as fun as it is, is not as fluid and is not as fun or punchy or not as meaty as a Battlefield game or as a Call of Duty game. So it wouldn't keep people to want to play for 100 hours. 20 to 30 hours of gameplay tops. And then every once in a while, after a few months, when you're itching for Star Wars with some buddies, right? That's what it's designed for. For it to think it could be anything else was foolish but if it improved some of its gameplay mechanics and if it didn't have that from the start it would still be um updated upgraded and be the best ba- uh, best online multiplayer competitive suite for star wars it's now a dead game i mean people still play it i play it with my buddies every once in a while but it's not very popular and it missed so drastically they're not even gonna make a third one it's a shame because all the elements and assets are there. And they did actually improve the core gameplay mechanics later. It's the last update. They added a uh, map, a few new heroes, multitude of bug fixes, and somehow reworked time to kill or something made the gameplay actually fun and punchy, meaty, something that you could really get into. However, there's not enough people playing it. There's no more updates. There's no more progress. So it's a dead game. When they finally fixed it and made it fun and took out the microtransactions and made the gameplay loop. They fixed it. They actually fixed it. It's actually a fun game if you go and play it right now. It's just a little dated. It's been two years since they've added anything. So that's the uh, example. So that brought a crashing halt to the current financial um, systems in place, right? 2017, I think, was when Call of Duty World War II came out, right? It was all about loot boxes. It was gambling. You pay a dollar for these 100 uh, premium credits that you can only get if you pay real money in a game you've already paid $60 for, mind you. It's not a free-to-play game. It's a $60 game already. And then you might, might get something good, but usually 90% of the time you get something ass. That should be illegal because these, these games are shown and played by children. Children can't go to Vegas and play slots. They're not allowed to. It's illegal. Right? And we know, like, oh, it's rated mature, so you have to be 16. Yeah, still. <laughs> still, we know better. So lawmakers around the world start cracking down, saying no more loot boxes. You can't do that. That is a strictly gambling. Because lawsuits are brought up against EA for the Star Wars thing. Disney had to step in. Disney doesn't step in to fix video games. They're not like that. They had to step in and say, uh, can you stop fucking over our Star Wars IP? It still hurts me to say it's Disney's. But, you know, can you stop fucking us over? 
um, maybe fix it. You know, they really forced EA's hand. They threatened to cancel their exclusive deal with them. And now that exclusive deal runs out this year or next year. That, that however long, 10-year-long... So now other studios will start developing Star Wars games, which will be a breathe uh, fresh air, be a breath of fresh air to the to the video games of Star Wars. So anyway, my point is that happened at the same time. Fortnite, a free to play game that was fun, that worked, that didn't have people gamble. That's the other thing. There weren't loot boxes in it. You you could pay for two separate things. You could pay specifically for credits, five dollars, ten dollars. You see them everywhere. Premium credits. They're in mobile games everywhere, right? And when you're a free-to-play game, since you're not asking for people's money up front, more people are okay. I'm okay with you. You got to make your money somehow. You got to feed the developers. They have to feed their families. So how do you do that? Apologies. My, uh, I, I record on my phone. It's just easier, more accessible. And someone called me. So cut that. But uh, my point is that the microtransactions you got to pay for skins or the battle pass. The battle pass gave you exclusive skins that you wouldn't be able to buy in the store, da da da. But you pay for a certain amount of premium credits. You, you do that, you get your you either pick the skin you want to buy if there's just one you want or you buy the battle pass that over the course of time you progress through. You know, you pay a little more, maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 dollars, whatever, and you progress over the course of 3 4 months and or a year or however long you get you get a lot more bang for your buck, kind of a bundled deal that also gives you the satisfaction of pushing through it and keeps you playing. So those were their two uh, systems of getting money. It didn't affect gameplay. You don't buy a more powerful gun. It's a battle royale game. You find a more powerful gun. You build something. It does, there's no upgrades. It doesn't not better stat boosts. It doesn't make you more powerful in game. It makes you more happy with you know. We are very uh, surface level at times. We really want to flex what we have earned or show what we um, have, right? And it's just a natural instinct in humans, and they really tapped into that. If you invest this much time in the game, I understand. You would want to look different. You want to have a cool skin that speaks to you. I, I completely get it. I don't do it. I don't do it in any games except Rainbow Six, and I don't actually pay for that Um. I, I, if I have extra renown from in-game playing, yeah. What I do pay for, and it's different, it's not like Fortnite, I do pay for operators because they actually are different. They change the game completely. It's a new way of playing the game. You get a new ability, you get new weapons. It's not cosmetic. It actually changes how you play a game. It doesn't make you more powerful, though. That's the thing. That's the thing Rainbow Six does that people don't realize. Just... It, and by pe- I don't mean all people. There's probably plenty of people realize. Just clicked with me. I've always thought, well, it's not progress. It- it's different, right? Star Wars Battlefront or Call of Duty, when you bought in, first of all, it was a loot box, right? So it was just randomized. So you might get something good. You might not. That's disingenuous when you pay that much money. But beyond that, let's say you did pay for something powerful and you got something powerful. You're significantly more powerful than anyone else you're playing against because it's a PvP game. So is Rainbow Six. So is Fortnite. Here's the thing about those games. Rainbow Six, you do, you can pay for, for customizations and stuff now. You can pay for skins and stuff. So that's one thing. You can also earn them and get them at random and, and rewards and challenges. So that's, that's, that's all one thing. 
But you also can pay every year they, they drop new operators and new maps and bug fixes and new modes. And those new operators come with new guns, new sometimes new sights to those new guns that are not that are different. They have different stats to those guns. And an ability that is solely unique to that operator, right? Like no other operator can have that ability. So you could pay for that. You can earn it in-game. It's just expensive, but they do have a very smart system nowadays since they're year seven and they have a bajillion operators. They have like 50 operators now, which is crazy. They started with, with, uh, with 16. So just, to, just so you understand how much they've added in that game. And, but it's balanced. If someone buys, if I buy a new operator, new to me, you might have some different operators I don't have. It just depends on if you buy what you, if you buy your passes, if you play consistently, if you go back and buy an operator when it's cheaper. Because every time a new season drops, every operator previous gets cheaper in renown and credits. And those are their two payments. Renown, anybody can get. It's You get them over playing games. You don't get a lot, but you get enough and you save up and you can maybe buy an operator or two or a skin or whatever. You spend it however you want. Then the credits, those are premium. You either get, you get those by buying other things. You either have to buy them with real money or you buy a battle pass and it gives you a bundle of credits at the same time or whatever. Rainbow Six Siege is the only game for me personally over time that's a multiplayer game that I'm willing to keep repeatedly investing in microtransactions. Every once in a while, I'll admit, I'll be a sucker for a certain game I'm really into, and I'll shell out five, ten bucks. My, my logic is I'm having fun. I know what I'm buying, right? And I, and, I, and I can afford it, and I'm willing to because I'm enjoying myself. Right? That's my choice, and everyone's their own person. They can choose how they want to spend their money. They, want, they can choose how they want to spend their time. Rainbow Six is one of those where... First off, whenever they drop their year pass, which is a system where you get those operators 14 days in advance and you pay a premium up front. So you pay $30 for the entire year to get four or eight or however many new operators 14 days early, no additional cost to you. I did that, A, because that always went on sale the day after or the day of my birthday, so I had some extra spending cash. And it's a game I would play consistently, so I want the new operators. If you hardly play Rainbow Six, do not buy that. You will not be using it. It's not worth your time or money, right? So I did it for this year. I haven't done it for the past two years. So technically, I saved $60. No, I'm kidding. But um, I bought it this year, $30. What it also got me, because they introduced Battle Pass, is I actually also have the Premium Battle Pass tier, which I didn't know I got. They're also selling a version online, $60, which is the price of a new game. Do not buy it. It's not worth it unless you really want to and can afford it. And all it does is it gives you the four operators. It gives you the premium battle pass, just like the $30 one. The only thing it does different is it lets you skip 20 tiers of that battle pass. So you're 20 tiers in. However, if you play enough and you're good enough at the game, I'm already at tier 20. I've had the battle. I've had the season pass for two weeks. No, a week. I've had it for a week. And I don't even play every day. So don't spend the extra $30 for something that's so stupid. Um, anyway, that's just a little side note. But that's the difference. That's the, that, that was the switch. And Rainbow noticed that. They had some pretty shitty microtransactions in the beginning. They switched that immediately because that would have killed their game right off the bat. It's not perfect, but it's something. So that's my point. 
Battlefront fucked up, changed the industry. Fortnite changed the industry at the same time. They both pushed each other and pushed the industry in different ways. So now we're actually at a happy medium. We were at this we were at a time where like just to get a new map and just to get some a new feature on a game you already paid for, they're like, oh $30. You get all of it. Or you get some of it. What? <laughs> That's fucking ludicrous. The season packs and passes for Call of Duty and for Battlefield in 2012 to 2016 were ridiculous. Now, if you played the game enough and you wanted to, fine. But my point is, like, to pay $20 for a map that should have just been an update for free just to keep the content fresh. At the end of the day, big games like this need to keep you because you're what keeps their game alive when it's a multiplayer-only experience. If they don't have people playing their game, they are dead in the water. So they have to be giving us content over time, updates. And that's the other thing that I've mentioned before about video games that's solely unique to any other art form or medium out there. When you put out an album, when you put out a song, when you put out a movie, when you put out a book, if you make that, first off, kudos, congrats. It's very hard to do and it's, and it's always a sacrifice. And it's, and it's always important. A show, theater, whatever. Any kind of art form that, or something people can consume, right? Very rarely can it be updated live, right? Right then and there, just change. Um, now, you could re-release a version with more to it. You could re-release a director's cut, an extended cut of a movie, Right, you could re-release uh, an. You can release a side B or deluxe version to an album. You know what I mean, and because a lot of these things are digital now, it it is just a, but it's a separate unit, right? Look at music to be murdered by by Eminem, side A. No one knew it was side A at the time. He didn't say it was side A. It was just music to be murdered by. Everyone's like, okay, dope, great album. People haven't. It's weird. It's pretty successful, critically and commercially, but. I've had multiple friends who are like, oh, yeah, I didn't hear that. I'm like, really? Huh. Anyway, so um, it was really good. A year and a half later, a year later, he dropped side B. Surprise drop. Deluxe edition side B. Deluxe edition has all of the stuff from side A and side B. It's not just like three or four tracks either. It's like 12 entirely new tracks. So that's like... The only way you can kind of update it, right? It's all from the same era of recording from him. It's all... And I bet you if he could have, he would have just done it as a single package. He said he had... Apparently, they had to wait for the samples to clear and some other stuff. Video games are different. New update, new feature, new change, something to fix because something's broken. You know, they have to work it on their end. They have to test it and then they send it through. And you just have to download it. But there was a time where bug fixes and improving the mechanics so things aren't broken is always free. That's just the download. The only thing that that costs is your time, once again, and your storage space. <laughs> um, but then for content, new maps, new modes, new, new weapons, new, new cosmetics, new items, new tools, new abilities, whatever. Whatever, new characters, whatever it adds. Used to be you have to pay to get that. And people who paid had it. People who didn't, didn't, and they couldn't play with each other in the same damn game on the same console. It wasn't a cross-play issue. 
if you had a different map in Call of Duty or Battlefield and I didn't buy that map, I'm shit out of luck. I can't play that map with you. Now, if we join a party together, you can't play that map. Or I can't. We'd have to split for you to go play that, right? It was like that. Fortnite changed that. And a couple other things and games changed it. So over the course of time, then that became free. New maps, new content, general content became free. So the premium is... And then after the Battlefront thing, paying a premium was no longer to make you more powerful. That was a crucial fix that would have very, very rapidly deteriorated the game industry. And Fortnite helped fix that with the Battle Pass implementation. Because they made money. And it showed that it worked. And other games have done it and it makes money. And players are pretty much happy because it doesn't affect the progress and it doesn't segregate people from playing in different regions. And by that, like having map restrictions or content restrictions. You can all play the same game and be equal in that footing other than your own skill level and understanding of the game, of course. That's just learning it. That's free. Um, but if you want to look different, okay. Other than sports games, but fuck those. Those are different... They need fixing. They didn't get the memo. It's a whole different ballgame. Sports gamers will fall for it every time because they like their sports. And and many people who play sports video games aren't consistent gamers, so they don't know better. If you play Madden, if you play 2K, just know that the most fun mode, the one that's supported, the one where you play with your friends, the one where you build your team, the Diamond Dynasties, the, the Ultimate Team franchise stuff, Not the offline, not the single-player stuff. That's fine, too, if you want to play that. If you want to just play Exhibition with your buddy, oh, perfectly fine. Go ahead, do that. My point is, if you're playing the one where you get the cards, you want a 98 of a player, a 99 overall player, that kind of thing, super fun. Those are my favorite kind of game modes, of course, with my dumbass luck in the sports games. But you don't earn them very easily. It's very hard. It takes... It takes more time to earn them, and that's intentional. They inflate the time to earn it to the point where you just want to buy it. It's just easier. I'd rather spend $5 to get that than spend 200 hours to get it. Much rather. And that's where time and money comes in play. We are now entering an era of games where free-to-play games are becoming so much more accessible and common where that might become the video game industry standard. The fact that Halo Infinite... Halo, of all things, multiplayer went full free. The fact that Warzone for Call of Duty is free to play. And the fact that all of their microtransactions and purchasing points are purely for cosmetic purposes means they saw Fortnite and they did that, but for their own thing. Hell, Warzone, Call of Duty just copied Fortnite. They just made a Battle Royale mode. Halo didn't do that. It's still Halo multiplayer. So my point is they did that. That's good actually because how it used to be was fucking ludicrous however here's the issue in that the time is another factor as we venture into more free games or services that allow free downloads of games game pass is a beautiful thing and if you have xbox or pc if you don't get it you are losing lots of money and oh metric fuck ton of money in the long run because $15 for the one that gets you all the stuff and 
get the fifteen dollar one. Just get it because what it does is it gives you Xbox Gold if you have Xbox. It gives you all that. It gives you the ability to play online with friends and all that shit. It gives you Xbox Game Pass on PC, and it gives you the full Xbox Game Pass suite. There's the ten dollar and the fifteen dollar version. Do the fifteen dollar version, especially since the fifteen dollar version allows EA games with no additional cost. You don't have to pay for EA's five dollar membership, and they're gonna get Ubisoft Plus. So if you have Game Pass Ultimate, you are in luck. And I'm going to get into the streaming time, and then um, I'm kind of going. I'm, I'm kind of going by explaining certain segments and the history because I'm just getting too wrapped up in it, and I apologize. But there are things that are eroding, such as crunch. That's just not healthy. It's just terrible for the workers. But here are some, some contributing factors to why we could have a video game crash. I know I've been beating around the bush. I haven't meant to. I hope that in everything I've been explaining and highlighting and laying out in front of you, you can kind of see where some of these faults are hitting. One, monetization is always too prioritized over the gameplay content itself. Two, franchises and monopolizations of such franchises are becoming more and more apparent and they're becoming very damaging to the creative output of games. It's not good that Microsoft bought Activision and Blizzard and that they own Bethesda, Activision, Blizzard. Guys, Activision, Blizzard and was the largest, one of the top five largest gaming publishers ever. Ever since the 80s. And Blizzard... I'm sorry, um, Bethesda became pretty big. They're so big, they have their own conference at EA. When you're able to have your own booth and conference show that isn't Microsoft, Sony, or Nintendo, right, because they're the three that actually make consoles, when you're just a game developer and publisher and you have your own booth and console, I'm sorry, your booth and, and show at a conference, you're fucking huge. That means you have so much content in your own ecosystem. So back in the day, in like 2016, EA, I'm sorry, uh, E3 had different booths. They had the big presentation from Microsoft, the big presentation from Sony, and the big presentation from Nintendo, right? Those are the three headers. Then you've got the other presentations and shows and other flo floors. You got EA. You got Ubisoft. You've got Activision Blizzard. You've got Bethesda. Devolver Digital, and a handful of others, so on and so forth. Microsoft, in the past, uh, you know, four years, had bought Minecraft, one of the most profitable and largest games ever, uh, but also, well, the studio that made it, you know, therefore the rights. They also have now bought, what, two or three of those booths at E3, essentially? The companies. <laughs> they bought Bethesda. If you don't know who they are, they're kind of in charge of, you know, Fallout, that series, Skyrim, or Elder Scrolls, but, you know, Skyrim most notably, and, um, you know, a bunch of other games. I can't, uh, they, you know, Wolfenstein, Doom, because all of their subs all of their smaller developers under them, because they're all, they buy publishers who have devs. And then they bought, this year, they bought Activision, Blizzard. For $72 billion. Um, 
They own Call of Duty now, the largest, most profitable, and longest-lasting video game franchise for that profit margin of all time. Um, so they have the rights to that. They have the rights to every Activision and Blizzard. Blizzard is its own thing that Activision bought back in, like, 2013. So Blizzard is Diablo, Hearthstone, fucking um, World of Warcraft, Starcraft. Lots of crafts. Um... And Microsoft has already acquired so many other things. And Xbox is already making some pretty big stuff, like Halo. <laughs> you know? So my point is that they are, um, they're too powerful. They're too damn powerful. Somehow they're not getting hit with monopolization laws. I don't know how they're dodging that, but they are. It's impressive. Now, to be fair, Activision Blizzard is a shitty company and was falling apart, and um, it kind of needed somebody with big money and who has a better culture and better workplace environment to take it over. Because it was destroying some of the most beloved games ever and destroying the people making them. So, net win in that regard, but down the line, it could be a net loss for us as consumers. It's too much control. It's like Disney. No single company should have that much control over, the, uh, the, uh, over what we love. If you love Call of Duty... And you love Halo, and you love Doom, and you love Skyrim, and you love Wolfenstein, and you love World of Warcraft, and you love Sea of Thieves, and you love Forza. They're all owned by the same company now. That's too much. Right? And we're seeing that in every industry, but especially there. Apologies where it had that little weird cut in between my uh, talking. Um, phone interruptions are not fun anyway so going into that game pass xbox game pass ultimate whatever it's called regardless of if you agree or disagree with monopolization of this i disagree with it i don't really i mean i disagree with it and i will wholeheartedly disagree with it i think we need more individuality between these studios and devs and they need to be safe from being bought up right now, sometimes good can come of it, like financing, like changing the workplace, especially in Activision Blizzard. They were toxic, they were sexual harassment, they were, it's just horrid. But it, overall, the creative output shifts too. And just because a big company is big and has money and has a lot of diversity doesn't mean that it can't fuck up. And, it, and if it fucks up, there's just a lot more fucked up with it. You know what I mean? You know, if they have a, if Microsoft has a rough year and they don't feel like f financing games as much, which isn't going to happen, they're putting more money into it than ever. But if they feel like that at any point, oh, we're fucked. Uh, so many people are fucked in the video games they love because those video games are going to be halted, delayed, have worse outcomes. You know what I mean? They're building an empire, and that's that's one thing. <sighs> but what it does is it allows these games to be day one on Game Pass for free download if you're paying $15 a month. So it's not free free, but it's it's cheaper than paying $60. Most people would pay $60 every year for a new COD. I guarantee you by after 2023, you won't have to. So that alone covers four months worth of Game Pass. That's if you just play COD. If you play any of the other games from the publishers they own and you're, you're downloading them day one, you're saving a lot of money. The only thing you have to invest in now is A, time, and B, storage space, which isn't too hard. 
And that's where the time thing... Oh, so last point. If you get the Game Pass Plus, they're going to have EA Play. They're going to have the Ubisoft Plus tier. So all those Ubisoft premium games are going to be free downloads for no additional cost. When I say free downloads on Game Pass, that's what I mean. You don't have to pay $60, $30, $20. You just download them. And they stay on there for a while. They only take two or three games off uh, a month. And they'll let you know. And if you really want to, you can buy those games so you own them 10 to 20% off you really fall in love with them so it's not like a trial or a demo and and here's the thing when they own them when microsoft solely owns them in first party they're not going anywhere gears of war and halo isn't going to ever leave game pass forza isn't going to leave game pass they're there forever so that means all the call of duties world of warcraft all the diablos all the elder scrolls the dooms wolfensteins fallouts those are all going to be there permanently And then depending on the deals with EA, with Ubisoft, with these other companies, then that's more ebb and flow fluctuating. But that's a big bang for your buck if you're a gamer. So really, it's the time now that you invest in trying them out and seeing if you like them. It takes a couple hours to learn. So you're losing a few hours when you want to try a new game. But hey, they click and you like it. And it allows, it's so different now. Back in the day, if you wanted a new game, you had to do a lot of research and then you bought it. If you didn't like it, too bad. You played it anyway until the new game that you really want to come out. That's why Call of Duty was successful, because everybody knew what they were getting every year. Quality could shift, but the point is, like, you knew what you were getting, so it wasn't too unexpected. It was consistent. So buying it made it easier and made it almost a no-brainer. Um, I don't agree with that annual model. feels like that reduces the quality of the game and it reduces... The time in the older game and it it's too expensive so uh so that's why that was kind of a thing now you can just download it and if your friends have it great if you have crossplay even better um so i'll try new games with my buddies every week we'll get excited we'll say oh try this we try it we don't like it we move on sometimes we stick with the game sometimes we play it for a few months it doesn't matter Makes it real hard to try to get them to buy a game. That's for fucking sure. Because <laughs> they're like, is it on Game Pass? No. Okay, well, maybe not. You know? The downside of it is the time. It does take a lot of time out of your day. Time that you could be spent playing games. However, you're saving a lot of money, so it's kind of worth it. If you're going to be doing it anyway. That's the point, though. You don't want all of these games it can be overwhelming and it can make you numb to getting new games or seeing a bunch of you know, like i already have all these it's kind of like netflix it's overwhelming at times and it takes longer to pick the movie than to watch the movie that fatigue can happen it's rare you kind of know what you want when you're gaming right you know what you're in the mood for usually you have it downloaded already so it's one of those things. I personally love it. I don't mind it. I like researching games. And if I don't have to pay for it, why the fuck would, <laughs> why would I complain? I, you know, but I'm a gamer. I make it, I, I fit it into my life. It's how I meditate. It's how I relax. I mean, I, I actually meditate. But it's how I relax. It's how I socialize with friends. It's how I decompress. It's what I love to do on my free time. So it's no problem to me, but for other people who don't game as often, it's useless. They do not need that service. If you only pick up your controller once or twice a month, 
do not get Game Pass. It's not for you. You're wasting money. But if you play daily, or week, or even weekly, a couple times a week, consistently, more than more than a couple times, like three or four times a week, consistently for a few hours, it might be worth it. Right? It's dependent on you, of course. But that's just one thing that I've learned, and it's just going to expand. So anybody who's uh, looking at that, really taking a note, always look at who owns what. Microsoft owns a shit ton, so there's going to be a shit ton there, and they have deals with other people that expands it. So the library of Game Pass has been expanding. It's about to get a way, 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 way bigger. It's nuts. These are good things in the game industry to some extent for the consumer. They're bad because of monopolization. But here's where the video game industry is going to crumble and fail. Everything I've been talking about is important and good to know to inform you. But the crux of the issue at play is that these games are also not being funded as much as they used to, or they're not listening when they are being funded. The devs don't listen to the community. Ubisoft flatly fucking ignores the community when it comes to Ghost Recon. I've never seen such ignorance from a single studio. Everyone liked, most people liked Ghost Recon Wildlands. It, sure, it changed the formula, made it open world, but it was still tactical, it was still slower paced, and it, it was really cool, and it's very fun. Highly recommend it. Breakpoint fucked up, had a bunch of microtransaction bullshit, became more division than it was Ghost Recon. It was the first step away from where people were like, whoa, 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 what the fuck are you doing? It had monumental failure, it crashed and burned. It's practically a dead game. And that's what confuses me. It confuses me to no end. When a publisher who's so focused on money, when a product fails and does not deliver even close to what they were expecting at bare minimum, why the fuck would they continue down the road that makes it worse for them? It's, it literally happened with Activision. I was so hopeful... For Call of Duty Modern Warfare 19, the first episode of this podcast, that's how hopeful I was of that game. It was a great game. It was a phenomenal game. Still is to this day. And the new one's coming out this year, and I pray to the Lord it is good. I pray they have enough time, and they put enough research and effort, and it'll be as good as Modern Warfare 2019, and only better, not worse. Because the other two games that came out since then have been fucking terrible. And I wish I never bought... Them, except for Cold War. Cold War Zombies was great, but I wish I never bought them. Could have saved so much money. Um, so that's what I'm getting at, though. Like, that's what happens. I thought when that game came out, it was a little slower paced, a little more back to its roots. It had a new engine. It looked beautiful. It ran pretty buttery, buttery smooth. It had some issues, but not too bad. And it had all the modes we wanted. And they added new content. There's no bullshit microtransaction stuff. And they didn't have a season pass till way later. And the season pass was actually really good. Because it was a battle pass. Sorry. It wasn't a season pass. It was a battle pass. So you, you buy it if you want. And you get COD points. They're, you know, their exclusive currency. That literally they give you enough to buy a battle the next three-month cycle battle pass. I... Shit, if you played enough. I did play enough. That was like my main multiplayer game for a long time. Um, 
I played that game so much that I bought the Battle Pass once for five bucks off. I bought it for ten dollars. I didn't buy a Battle Pass since. I played for four seasons of their four cycles of their Battle Pass because I just kept buying it again by earning the credits by playing it. That's because I sunk that much time in, so that's just dependent on your play. But my point is that that's, that's, uh, that was a high point. Ever since then, it's been gradually falling, stumbling down. Drastically. How the fuck? Cold War was made in nine months. That's part of the issue. Nine months. It's not enough for a game. Whereas Modern Warfare? Modern Warfare was made in the course of five years total. Three years of pure development. Two years of pre-production and research. When you... And Cold War came out a year after Modern Warfare. You can tell the difference. Just from the graphics. Graphics are worse. That's not how that works. At the very minimum, graphics get a little better each time. You know what I mean? So that's what happened. Same with Ubisoft. The stuff that makes them money that people like and people play for longer, and then they're like, huh, no. And they do something completely asinine, it tanks them, and then they're like, oh shit, maybe we should do that. And then they do it again, people love it, and then they do the same fucking thing. I've never seen such, such stupidity. Or money, but it's not even greedy. Like, you can't even say that's for money. They're literally reducing their income from doing that. No one would have complained if they put out a nice, chunky bit of content. First of all, they dropped Warzone by Season 2 of Modern Warfare. So they added an entire new mode that blew up in popularity and was free to play, even if you didn't have Modern Warfare. So that bought them some time. But beyond that, if they just kept adding new guns, some new things, some new maps, some new modes, uh, and features and improvements, if they just kept adding that for two years two years the gameplay is strong enough and the graphics are good enough i guarantee you they would have kept people i would have i would keep playing it if they never released cold war and vanguard and then what would that give them time for that would give time for the other two studios that give them way more time to make whatever they're making last longer and better and financially do better but here's the problem here's where it fucked up off the hype Hype is the greatest killer of any good video game. Off the hype and the energy, momentum that Modern Warfare 2019 laid down, Cold War, which is dramatically worse, because people were excited and thought, oh shit, God is... Everyone universally thought, okay, God's getting their shit together. The next one's going to be even better. It's got to be. If, if this one was good, how could... No one knew that Cold War was in a nine-month dev cycle. Everyone figured Cold War has been in development since Black Ops 4 came out. And that came out in 2017. Right? So it had even more time. Modern Warfare bought it more time, right? (laughs) That's how people thought. That's how I thought. I'm like, okay. I played the beta. The beta was bad. But it was actually kind of fun. I enjoyed it. I'm like, okay. Kind of see where this is going. I bought into it. I bought into the hype. I bought into how good Modern Warfare was. I'm like, okay, surely they got to be doing something right. And I like the Black Ops series. I want to play zombies. I want to see what's up. And I love Cold War stuff. I'm a sucker for history. If you got Cold War, if you got World War II era, I'm probably buying it even if it's not smart. Even if it's actually bad. I'll probably still buy it because I love consuming that kind of content. So I'm a sucker for that. That's what really got me. Like, they're taking place in Cold War. 
Okay. If they have a COD Vietnam game, I don't... It could be... It could be low-res polygons. I'd still probably buy it. Uh, that's how much of a sucker I am for certain history things, especially American history. For for those eras. Um, so I bought it, and it wasn't great. It was okay. It was fun, but it just wasn't as good as Modern Warfare 2019. It was a disappointment. It sold more than Modern Warfare 2019. Modern Warfare 2019 sold the most any Call of Duty game ever did, which gave me faith that, okay, they realize that if they make a good game, it'll sell more. Great. Well, no, because a game that was poorly made in a quick amount of time made more. It made more because it was going off the hype of the game that was made well, not off the merits of the new game that was made poorly. And then Vanguard came out. Vanguard didn't sell nearly as well as the other two and was significantly shittier than both of them. So hopefully this makes them think for this Modern Warfare 2, which is setting the bar so fucking high, it's, it's going to be hard to pass it or even level it. And then with the whole Microsoft acquisition, that's going to fuck some shit up. So I'm not expecting Modern Warfare 2 to be as good as Modern Warfare 2019 just because of the fundamental shifts they've had in the past few years. But that's just something to take note of. These are the things that happen, and that is an issue. It's a very corrosive issue because these big companies don't listen, and then the only people that have control of the games that are in high demand. That's a huge fucking problem. You can... Scream from the mountaintops you want crossplay. I've been screaming for a few years. We need better crossplay and cross progression. They don't care. They'll do it on their own time. It's infuriating. And it makes you not want to play the game or support the devs. Right? And that's the issue we're facing now. Your favorite franchise. They'll do whatever they fucking please if it makes money. And they always have been that way. But now it's so goddamn broken because they'll make way more money if they make a good game. It's clear, even to this day. But they'd rather chase trends. The, the new Ghost Recon Frontlines game by Ubisoft is coming out. It's going to be free to play. It's a Battle Royale game. Not that Battle Royale is dead, but it... But them taking a stab at Battle Royale now is very stupid. The reason that it drives me mad also is sometimes the certain franchises or IPs or the studios, they should know what makes people want to go to their games. Gamers aren't exclusively playing one game. They will have multiple games from multiple studios, franchises, and developers for different purposes. They'll have their go-to battle royale game with their buddies. They'll have their go-to co-op. They'll have their go-to single-player game. And that'll cycle every three, six months, a year, whatever. Gamers very rarely play just one game forever. I cycle through games all the fucking time. And they're all from different people. And they're all different distributors, different creators, different designs, different thought processes. It's a constant search for something new and fun. And it's a detriment because the, the search for nostalgia of having as much fun as you did when you were a kid when it was a nuanced concept is also an effect. You know, when you think about, when I think back of how much time I spent playing Black Ops 2 and how I never, and Halo Reach, I played those games around the same time, back to back. Those are it. Like, 
for years. That's I mean, if those are the only two games I had with me on an island and my buddies to play with, of course, or just by myself, I was perfectly fine. I play the campaigns over and over. I play the single-player modes, the zombies. I solo queue in multiplayer modes, no problem. And then when I have my friends, even better. That's it. I mean, like, I, I could have... And to this day, they're still so fucking good, I could go back and play them. The part of it's nostalgia. So, is it because I was younger and dumber and didn't know better, or is it because the games were better back then? Well, a little bit of both. My nostalgia accentuates and highlights and kind of brushes over the, the downsides, the bad lighting on some of the games, but also the games were more fully fleshed out. It wasn't as unbalanced or broken. There weren't shit ton of microtransactions at the time. There were some DLC packs, but that was different. The gameplay worked. It was balanced. People played it. They weren't, in, you know... Yeah, I mean, it was just... And it had a lot of features. Halo Reach, a fully fleshed, fleshed out and incredibly well done, in my opinion, campaign. A firefight mode, PvE with your buddies. A forge mode where you create stuff, custom games, which is even a little different. And then the multiplayer mode, which is their bread and butter, with multiple, like, 25 different game modes. And a bajillion different maps. And they're all fun and unique in their own way. Halo Infinite. Almost a decade later. Better graphics. Better gameplay improvements. Like six modes at launch. A fully fledged open world campaign. Which for me doesn't work with Halo. But I, I can see why they tried. That's it. No PvE. No firefight mode. No forge mode, no custom mode. Six game modes, like eight or twelve maps. A decade later, better graphics, better hardware, better understanding of the franchise and the community. Why? Why would they do that? That's where the season pass becomes a detriment. Because it takes so much more to create games now. It does. It's not as easy as it was then. It's so many more assets and takes so much more time to build and process and balance. So that's part of it, sure. But also, they just say, oh, well, it's not fully finished. We'll polish it. We'll release the game with a, with a little bit of content. We'll polish it, and then we'll release it as season passes. Or as seasonal content update to keep them coming back in case we lose them. My argument is, make it all good. Spend the time you need. So if you're going to take as long as you do. You know, the next, it took five to six years for the new Halo to come out. That's enough time. It really is. Um, I'm not faulting them. They did a phenomenal job at the game, but it's just lacking content right now. It needs more desperately, really quickly. If it doesn't get it, it's going to die quickly. And, and it's unfortunate. We consume so quickly that it can damage the longevity of a multiplayer game. But look at Elden Ring. Elden Ring is a single-player game with... As much as I wish it was fully co-op, open world, cross-play, if they did that, I would, I fucking guarantee you I would rebuy it on my Xbox. Well, if it was cross-play, I wouldn't. But if they just made it a fully, even more manageable, a fully open world co-op thing where you could jump in and help your friend at any time, explore, everything is the same, just with a buddy, and you, you the items you get and the runes you get, you get to keep for your own build, but the progress, like defeating that monster, is only in their world. So you have to do it in your world, too. And if you want them to come and help you, they can. If they added that, oh, 
I would rebuy it on Xbox. Whole $60. Easily. And redo my an entire new build. Easily. They'd have me on that game for another 80 hours. And another $60. Easily. Now, I don't know if it's because they don't want to, their resources, whatever, to each their own. They built a phenomenal game, though. One of the best games of the year and the best games of a generation. That's just a personal preference. I'd love for it to be able to play with my friends. but um, And it really seems like it could fit. I don't know, though. But my point is, that's how phenomenal of a game they made. It's a single-player game, too. And peop- companies are afraid of doing that because they're like, oh, people won't play and stay on. I've played more Elden Ring than I've played of any of the new multiplayer first-person shooters combined in the past couple years. I really have sunk a lot of time in Elden Ring because it's fun. It's just genuinely well-made and crafted with love, and it took a while. Since um, probably around Sekiro. I mean, they were probably all hands on deck for that, but I, I don't know. But probably around that time, 2018, 2019, is when they started Elden Ring. So a handful of years. And it's this good? Halo had more time than that. Halo Infinite. And it's not nearly as good. In its own respect, it's different. I know it's completely different. But it's not nearly as good as in its own regard. Why not? It Halo has co-op campaign. It knows how to do multiplayer. It kind of birthed multiplayer 2.0 for many. It kind of made multiplayer a legitimate thing for so many gamers in history that's what Halo's known for how the fuck do they have a co-op they've had co-op campaigns for a decade how have they not managed to figure out how to do that on launch day it's an open world game if they had co-op that would probably keep people playing so it's those kinds of things that drive me nuts I'm like how the flying fuck they have more money than from software they have a larger staff and they had two more years of dev time and they had significantly if you were to compare just general to what the franchises are known for. I'm not comparing them directly. You can't. They're completely different games. Significantly less content. Elden Ring is the most in-depth, intricate, and largest project that, that From Software has ever done. It's an amalgamation, and it's their opus of all of their previous work and expertise combined. And it shows. And it's phenomenal. And it's so goddamn intricate, it's almost overwhelming. Halo Infinite could have been that. Didn't have to be a magnum opus. It just had to be a new edition of Halo, and it and for its gameplay loop, phenomenal. There's no better gameplay loop for Halo. Uh, it's just lacking general stuff, the easy stuff, the stuff that is in every other Halo. So, there are things like that that damage the industry because they're waiting for season pass. I don't think From Software is planning on dropping new content anytime soon. I would hope they do. Honestly. Elden Ring is so good that I, I'm excited to see what next game they make. But if that's coming in four or five years, I could give a fuck less. I am too invested in Elden Ring. So drop some new content. Not like content content. I don't need a new... I mean, if you want to drop a new area or region, I guess they could do that. But um, no, like drop new features and, and just do bug fixes. And that's it. I mean, and it would be even better. But... They spent the time, they cooked it, they perfected it, they put it out to the public, people bought it, it's the highest selling game that From Software's made, people are playing it, and that's it. And they're going to keep playing it for as long as they choose. 
that shows us that making a good game is far more powerful than rushing a good franchise. And that's why one of the reasons why our industry is collapsing, the gaming industry. Too many people are rushing. It's the same exact problem Atari had in the beginning. So that was the first part of some modern game issues. I know this is extremely long. This might be my longest episode. Just felt like talking about it. Um, I know. Shout out to C's two hundred nine S E I Z two hundred nine. Uh, he he said one day I'm like he listens to some of my podcasts. So shout out to him and shout out to JB. Um, but he did say. I'm like, yeah, man, I, I like to record podcasts. I like to get it off my chest, out of my mind, and just to talk about stuff I know about and that I like. He's like, that's what he, and he said he likes to listen. I'm like, I'm, I'm glad, man. I'm glad you get something from it. And I said, but I don't know. Sometimes I feel like they go on way too long. And he's like, man, fuck that. People, if people come to hear you, they come to hear you. They know what they, they're getting into. So with that wisdom, I'm, I'm taking that into consideration. I try not to be overbearing, but there are podcasts that go on for four or five hours, and so it's a 90-minute, two-hour podcast. You know, it's your choice to listen. My choice to make it. <laughs> I just, I always feel weird, because I'm like, yeah, this is going on a while. But I Twitch stream for, for fucking ever, so I guess it's fine. So here's my thing. The video game industry is changing. We're at a point now where it, it, it can be scary because it's so trend-based. But it also is still founded in what people like about the games. There are niche, niche genres, right? And there are things that people rely on when they buy into a certain franchise. But we're facing this influx of content output and monetization. Perfect example. The new Borderlands came out. Uh, review embargoes lifted today. The, uh, what, what's it called? Uh, the teenies, t- Tiny Tina's Wonderland Mayhem or something. Whatever it's called. Um, looks great. Looks interesting. Looks like a nice fresh twist. Um, looks like it's got some good concepts, you know. There's some element. All the reviews are saying it's great, like eight out of ten, seven out of ten. You know that kind of range. It's it's great. It's really fun. If you like Borderlands, you like this. It's got everything, and it does improve on some things. It's got some fresh twists, and it's definitely fun. And it's crossplay, which is dope. But um, fully like no bullshit. No like oh, the only crossplay between these two consoles. That's not crossplay. That's that's uh, that's uh, interconnection. <laughs> it's crossplay. It's just annoying when they're like, yeah, it's crossplay, but only between Xbox and PlayStation. Like there are other consoles out there, so full crossplay across the board. It's really nice to see, right? So there are some great things to it, and it's that Borderlands formula. So if you like Borderlands, you're buying into it. I love Borderlands. I didn't love Borderlands three. The writing was garbage, but the gameplay was still fun. Got a little tedious, but it was still fun. Still sunk a good chunk of time in it and had a blast. I can only imagine this one, a little more fresh, better writing. Apparently the writing's actually good. A little more fresh and to play with my buddies? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely going to be a blast for that reason. But you buy in and you go in and you play games for certain reasons. 
I don't play Rainbow Six Siege to relax. Well, I do because I'm weird, but... You know what I mean? I, I like it, and it relaxes me to play it because I have fun, but it's not a relaxing game. It's not a peaceful game. It's very high-stakes stress. I don't play Elden Ring to have a to have an easy time. You know what I mean? It's not a casual game. Same goes with the genre and what you're buying into and what your expectations are. But it's equally as important for the industry or the developers, the makers, to know exactly what they need to sell to you. It goes for any kind of thing when you're selling or trying to get someone to consume your medium. If you're listening to a psychic song, you know, if you know that it's hip-hop, right, that's the first thing you got to know going into it. It ain't going to be a a country track, right? Nothing against country. I just, I'm not a singer. So I'm not going to be singing country or or R&B or pop. It's a rap thing. Okay, but there's subgenres in rap. The way I try to market myself, and if you ever hear a couple of my songs, I'm faster tempo, I'm heavy lyricism. I like to be intricate. I'm a lyricist, right? Inspired off the Eminem's and the Kendrick Lamar's and the J. Cole's. So I sure I got my slow songs. Sure I got songs that aren't too lyrically dense and complex. I got my bangers. I try to diversify. But usually when you're getting a psychic song, 80% of the time, you're getting a faster tempo compared to other songs. Lyrically dense. Anybody who's listened to my albums or consistently listens to me, first off, thank you, but also knows that. They know what they're getting into. They know what they're listening to. If you expect me to all of a sudden be a gunna type or a, you know, a baby type, you're going to be very, very, very disappointed. Or a Jack Harlow type. I don't do swag rap. There might be some tracks in the future that I'm working on that have some swag rap, but like, I make, I'd like to branch out and try certain songs, but my bread and butter and what I love to create and what my fans have come to like about me is the lyricism, is the intricacy, is the social or deeper internal messages, and is the, the little faster tempo. My average tempo is 120 to 140. I have plenty of fellow rappers and friends who like 85 BPM. I like 120 at my lowest. I'll do 85s. I have have plenty of songs that are slower tempo. But usually, I slip into that faster tempo. That's just how I do it. And if you go in expecting anything other than that, it's putting an unfair advantage on me as a creator if you're upset with what I normally would create. It's the same thing going to a Tarantino movie. If you hate a lot of dialogue and blood in movies, do not go see a fucking Tarantino movie. You know what I mean? It's that kind of thing. So don't set... So we have certain set expectations for any kind of game or anything we consume. My expectations for this new Borderlands is that it's Borderlands just in a different environment with some new twists and turns. And from the reviews and all the research I've done, it's just like that. (laughs) So would I buy it? Yeah. I like Borderlands. I've never 
Borderlands 3 I was disappointed in, but it took 30 hours to get into it before I started getting fatigued. And usually for me, if I can play a game for 20 to 30 hours over the course of a f- six months, it's worth it. It's a handful of time. That's good time. That's 30 hours of enjoyment. Now, if it was a dollar per hour, that'd be cooler. So if the game was $30, right? <laughs> but still, you know what I mean? Um, that's a little over a day. Through and through. That's what I usually like to do. 20 to 30 hours. And that's usually when I get the gist of the entire gameplay loop as well. And most of the intricacies. Elden Ring, I'm hitting 80 hours. That should give you an idea. The game has only been out for just... By, by Friday, it's only been out for an entire month. It's <laughs> a shit ton of time. That's how good that game is. I don't expect... And the MLB, the show 22, I'm going to sink a shit ton of time in that game. But I know what that game is bringing because I played 21. So there, there are some differences, right? Elden Ring, I've played from software games. I knew kind of what I was getting into, but I didn't know it's a brand new IP. It's a brand new spin on things. It really is a new game, but it's very familiar. Um, Borderlands, I am very used to. I know how it works. And I've never, like, not enjoyed it, except Borderlands 3. It was just a little disappointment. But I also got super hyped. That's the other thing I was talking about earlier. The hype train is real. And I'm an idiot and I fall for it. I get myself hyped. It's what I like to do. I don't get excited about many things. I get excited about new movies, new TV shows, new video games, new albums. Especially if it's from content and franchises I love. I forgot this new Borderlands game is coming out. Completely forgot. I was been a little busy, more excited about Elden Ring and MLB and the new Rainbow Six season. The MLB Show 21 has, and baseball is one of my favorite sports, and the MLB Show 21 has been one of my favorite sports games ever. From Software is one of my favorite game devs, and Sekiro is one of my all-time favorite games. Rainbow Six Siege is one of my all-time favorite multiplayer games, and they're going back to kind of their roots of really freshening up the genre. So three of some of my favorite types of games and genres are consecutively coming out in the course of a month apart from each other. I've been a little busy. But Borderlands for looter, shooter, co-op, fun, mayhem is also one of my top favorites as a franchise. That drops in two days. That's fucking nuts to me. I probably am going to buy it. I'm going to go broke. So if anyone... Um, so keep listening to my podcast so I can make a little bit of money. <sighs> little. Very little. Don't worry. It's, I'm not making bank here. I'm making... I think I can afford... I think I can afford one Subway sandwich. Um... So anyway, my point is, we go in with expectations. This is one of the only years I know for a fact that I will probably pay way more in video games by buying new video games. Not counting the new games. I'm trying to build up a library on Steam as well of games that I like that I couldn't play anywhere else. So Insurgency Sandstorm and uh, Ready or Not, all really good games. Always wanted to get into these tactical shooters. And now I'm able to. And I have fun in them. I do. I've sunk 80 hours in Insurgency Sandstorm. Haven't played as much in Ready or Not. Played a lot. And then life happened and other games came out. But mostly life happened. Um, it's a lot. But uh, but it's to each their own. Um, 
I assume people who are still listening to this at this point are gamers and interested. But the video game industry could fall and fail because we have content coming out the same way Atari started doing it. Less quality, less quality assurance and checking, less originality, more content. And that's a reverse and starts a decline once the consumer starts getting fatigued. And if, and if it happens all at once quickly enough, then people will stop buying as many new games. Now, the thing that is prolonging this potential downfall is streaming games. Game Pass and all these other services that may be available to certain people. It's not as financially fatiguing, but it's more time-consuming. More and more games are getting larger, getting more intricate, and you only realize you're not into the game like, like it's like you know a game you don't want to keep playing or won't come back to for a while. You only realize that when you're so far in that you've you know, 10 to 20 hours in. When you buy it, you kind of feel obligated and pressured to at least sink more time into it. When you download it, you could, you don't like it the first day, you can just delete it. It's no biggie. That's fine. But it takes more time, and most gamers are smart enough to know they got to give it at least a handful of hours to understand the mechanics, and maybe something new kind of opens up to them. You might know yourself. You might know, oh, this ain't clicking with me. And that risk is now more apparent because... The idea of the, the, for example, the new Borderlands game. I do want to get it, and I'd love my friends to get it. It's cross-play. I like Borderlands. I'm comfy in it. It's not going to be Borderlands 2. And I have to remind myself that to bring me back down to earth. But if it's better than Borderlands 3, I'll be happy. Will they? I don't know. Is it worth trying to convince my friends to buy a $60 game at launch, not knowing it's the uncertainty? Especially when we have other games that we already like playing. Maybe, because the cross-play selection is low, and that's kind of one of the reasons. It's a solid game from a developer. It's a kind of game that we all kind of like, and it is cross-play. So for those elements, it might be worth it on that notion to spice up our cross-play loop. But other than that, why else? And why would they want to risk that investment? There are only some times where I'm very certain a friend of mine or somebody would actually like it. Everything else, I'm just going off my likes. I'm going off what I know about them. And I'm trying to give them the best information that's digestible. My poor friends who I game with will get so many YouTube videos and breakdowns and so many descriptions by me that that deeply try to, like, break down a game. So I do the research for them, essentially. If I have the time, I mean, if I don't have, the, if I'm busy making a film, recording something, I won't do it. But what I'm saying is, like, on a free day, like right now, I'm, I'm free today. Spring break, right? Woo! And so I've been spending the time looking at certain games. So we run into this thing where we get fatigued by games faster. We want to switch over as well. Our attention span is shortening. Why is that? It's not inherently the consumer's fault. I don't think it is. I believe it's a combination. I mean, it's partially, it's not our fault. It's partially the circumstances of life. But it's also the developers. 
Elden Ring, I was thinking about, I've been stewing on this. This is why this is a long episode. I have been stewing on this thought and concept for the past couple months, and I've talked about it many times before on my podcast, so it's nothing new. But I've really been stewing on it more and more lately. And then Elden Ring came out. And that helped me with the pros of the industry more. Not that I hate video games. I still love them. But I was getting fatigued and I was getting overwhelmed. I'm like, why the fuck is it so difficult for the games we love to just have simple features that other games from the very same developers already have? And then why is it so difficult now to want to keep playing the same game for months on end without playing another game? Well, different folks, different strokes, different games, different names, right? So we have like this... It's different. I can't, you can't play Elden Ring with your buddies. So, missed opportunity there on their part. I pray to God they update it and make it cross-play full, or at least for one full co-op. And then, if they're really smart, make it cross-play, if they can. I don't see why not. There's literally no, there's no reason not to. It doesn't damage the game to have me on PC, who's using an Xbox controller, mind you, to go to my buddy help him out or just play together four player co-op even they already have it that's the reason why i'm so damn confused it's not that it's not there it's not that it's inherently a single player that would be different if it was just a single player game then i'd say well they probably just don't have they mechanically built it in a way where it just would break the game's balance to have multiple people fighting the boss not the case, because you can summon co-op up to three people, uh, three friends, to come help you with any boss. So, no, it's not a gameplay reason. It's a stubbornness reason. From Software has never had full integrated co-op. They've also never had a full open world. So, this would be the time to introduce that. And maybe they will. Maybe it's actually on their docket. It wouldn't be. It would. It would be smart if they if they introduced it, uh, in the in six months when people have, when everyone who really wanted to play it got through it mostly as single player, got that core experience. To keep people coming back and playing, drop full integrated co op, God willing crossplay. But even then, just at least full integrated co op across the board, right where you drop in, you help your friend. You can pick up the items and get the runes and upgrade your character all the same. Um, you just, if you kill a certain special boss, it only saves in their world and you still have to go kill it in yours if you haven't already. Have it like that, fully. None of that phantom see-through bullshit. Just have their whole body there as if they're there. You know? And... That's it. That would be that would that would bring so many people back. And then you know, if you're really bold, drop a new 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 map with a handful of new enemies and a new main boss. Why the fuck not? I know that's unheard of from them, but so is an open world. So if we're treading new water, why the fuck not just go all in? It's not compromising the vision. The vision's already been set forth and it's a fucking masterpiece. It's expanding on a game that is already strong. So that's that's just one thing that I really want, personally. But my point is, so, there are only certain games that are co-op. There are certain games that aren't. There are PvP, certain cross-play, you know, and there are certain feelings from those games. Rocket League is super fun to play, in general. They've got their formula down pat. 
takes a little while to get into. Once you're into it, you're into it. An hour or two is fun. Three to four hours of that game is not fun. I mean, it's still fun, but it's not like it's not as it's not designed to binge play. Elden Ring is so immersive, and there's so much to do. It is kind of fun to play for a while, unless you get frustrated, of course. Rainbow is kind of the same way as Elden Ring. So certain games have different like sit down time. Some games are purely designed for twenty minutes of fun, and that's if if that's all you have, that's it keeps it at that. That's why Call of Duty is so successful. Because Call of Duty is fun in thirty minute bursts. And if you want to keep playing match after match, a couple hours is fun. And it might get a little tiring. You might want to switch a game or switch a mode in the game. That's okay. That's okay to switch games and switch modes. It's perfectly fine. That's not an intention deficit order dis- issue, right? That's purely just how these things are designed. And it's personal. Sometimes things will hook you more than it will hook others, right? There are games that people say are regarded as a masterpiece. And I'm just like... I like it, it's just not something I'm going to get into. Dead by Daylight, look at that. That game looks super fucking fun. I always wanted to play it. It came out 1st of February. I did the math, I'm like, if I'm buying two new games, completely forgetting about this Borderlands thing, which I'm still debating if I get, um, I'm getting Sifu and I'm getting Elden Ring, and of course those fucking things drop in the same damn month. Sifu, I always wanted a game like that, looked great. I got it. I've had a lot of fun. It's incredible. I'm like on I'm like on the third stage now. Second or third stage. I haven't even beat it. Then Elden Ring came out. And everything was pushed to the side. That game has consumed me so much. And it's so fun that I'm perfectly fine with it. I feel a little bad because Sifu's a great game too. In its own regard. It's a masterpiece. I'm not playing it right now. I haven't touched Sifu in like two, three weeks. I've been playing MLB The Show 21. That game came out in April of last year. Why? Because the new one's about to come out in a week. Super excited. So that's all I'm saying. Like, I will switch and bounce and certain things. I, I'm back in Rainbow. I'm playing Rainbow now. I, I didn't play Rainbow Six Siege for a whole two years, and now I'm back playing it all of a sudden, consistently. Rocket League, I've been playing a shit ton. So those are the main games I'm playing at this moment. Last year, last summer, I was playing No Man's Sky, MLB The Show... And, um, ah, shit, one other game, I forget. You know what I mean? So, it ebbs and flows, and it cycles. Try a game, you don't like it. And that's the difference. That's the difference in the industry, and that's what's prolonging this crash, because you, they don't actually necessarily need you to buy the game up front. But what also, on the flip side, what could actually cause the crash is very much that reason because they still rely on that that's how they get the most money you don't hear of games that are more played because they're on game pass or streaming outselling games that are not streaming maybe because they don't have a metric of measuring it i think they do i just don't think um it's not equal to the same amount kind of like streaming music i know that much but it's also something where it's like um, well, fuck, I don't know. It's like Elden Ring. Elden Ring has sold 12 million units. 12 million copies at $60 a pop. Right? If it was streaming on Game Pass, it would, it would have way more players. Way more. Just if it was on Game Pass. If it was anywhere else, too. Any other streaming service for 
no additional cost. It would be there, you know. But if it's on Game Pass, oh my god. Everyone who has Game Pass on PC and Xbox would have it for a free install, and they would play it. That's the benefit of Game Pass. And you still, and the de- don't worry, devs and publishers still get paid for like streaming rights. They still get a they still get a cut of it, but not as much. Not as much as selling a sixty dollar unit. But it's more accessible, so you get more people. When you're an indie dev, that is the best option. Put it through Game Pass. Because not only does it still pay you, and it's consistent payment, people will find it. If you're an indie dev and you're developing a game, it might be a great game. Look at Remnant from the Ashes. It's a relatively small game, not in scale, not in, and it's growing, and it's actually more popular now. But when it came out, it, it was not the biggest thing. I only heard of it because of Game Pass, and a lot of people did. That's the beauty of it. Still paid them a little bit, not as much as if I found it and bought it. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have paid $30 or $40 for it. I have now because I beat it once, and I said this game is phenomenal, and I want to support it, and I want to have it in case it leaves Game Pass, and I bought the complete edition for 40 bucks. It was on sale, but I still, I still bought it. That's the power of that. It expands the reach, and it allows people who might not normally look at your game because of that price point. Price point is one of the largest barriers to people playing video games. Gamers playing video games, not just random people. Like, oh, you want to play a video game? No, they, there's way more barriers to them. No, no, people who, who are gamers consistently. The price, the price point is the barrier. You want to play this new game with me? No, I'm not going to. Why not? I'm not going to buy it. Oh, okay. Why not? I don't want to. Well, why? Because I want to buy this game. That's usually the reason. It's not because they don't want to play that game. They would love to try to get that game. It's a game. But they have to prioritize what they're going to buy. And most people only budget one or two brand new spanking new games in their annual idea of when they're going to get a game. Unless something really speaks to them or they buy into the hype. And one of those games for most people is Call of Duty. And then the other ones are usually a sports game. So for the majority of just casual gamers, the money that they'd be willing to spend on new games has already been spent before the game is even released. And that's a problem with annualized things because those games aren't necessarily better for it. And those games aren't actually always good. They're worse sometimes because they're pushed out. That's what Atari did. They kept the same price... They didn't do anything original, and they just kind of reshuffled some things and resold it as if it was a new game. And they put so many out on the market, it was overwhelming, and people got bored and stopped buying. That was at a time when they were also probably one of the only people putting games out, so it was different. It was solely dependent on them, right? To equivocate, that would be like if... EA was the only game publisher and developer. There were some others at the time around Atari, but they, they were the only ones that actually had an impact on tanking the own their the very own video game industry. So let's say there was everyone else was significantly smaller and EA was the only one. So every game you're playing is an EA game. How fucking unfun would that be? That was your only source of gaming. And you like gaming, and it's fun. You enjoy gaming. You take you take it for what it is, but you you know, grit your teeth and bear through. But like, after a while, you're gonna be like, okay, I'm done. I can't. 
I can't afford it and I don't want to because it's the same fucking thing every time. I'm just going to play the game I already bought that I'm enjoying still. Instead of hopes of you updating a new one. Right, and there were no updates or content features at the time too because it's all physical. So with all that in mind, that brought a crash. But it changed the industry for the better. So if we have a crash, here's the reasons why. It would be because there is too much content and not enough change to that content. It's because of the monopolization and the singular control over IPs, franchises, and assets. It's because of annualized cycles, and it's because of unfair microtransaction schemes or, or the prioritization of money over a good quality game. It's also the battle of gamers getting older fighting with nostalgia. And it's the change in our attention uh, and, and ability to focus on a singular game for an X amount of time. All of these are common issues and these are things that could spiral and create a really big issue. If developers and publishers aren't doing stuff to help further prevent and if we as consumers and gamers aren't finding better ways to manage our own expectations, our own time, and our own money. And if all of these things keep hitting crossroads and conflicting and stopping, it's going to get harder to want to keep buying and subscribing to video games. And when that happens, when you unsubscribe from Xbox Game Pass, and when you don't buy that annual Call of Duty and don't buy that annual Madden, That will crash the video game industry or make them spiral. And it will force one of two things. So let's get into it. This is my longest podcast I think I've ever recorded. Woo, making history. Um, so to conclude, I kind of went back and I, I didn't listen to all of it. <laughs> but I, I just kind of went back and, and I know there are some times where my recording cut off. And so it's going to be a little rougher to get through but I do appreciate if anyone gets to this point um, I have put in a 20 minute segment that is actually my the actual reasoning behind this entire podcast and going in as an overview on how I think the video game industry could fall but also what it could do to create I was going to get into that later and I just kept pushing it back because I kept going into detail and breaking each part of the industry down and so I don't want it to make it by the three hour mark you finally get to that point so I put it in in the first 40 minutes 30 minutes um so if someone's willing to listen for that long they'll get the gist of it and then I put a little preface you know to say hey from this point on I'm just going in more detail so if you want to see it by all means keep on pushing it if not you kind of got my entire point in the first 30 minutes i try to make it that way because i don't know who all is listening i don't know if someone has the time the energy or the intrigue to listen to the full podcast whether it's 90 minutes whether it's three hours you know the new borderlands um comes out tomorrow so i'm i don't know if i'll buy it yet but i do know that there's four borderlands games out there that i have played enough of so I will probably do a little podcast overview of that franchise because it's fresh on my mind. So anyway, to conclude my point, 
the fall of the video game industry could happen. I'm not saying it will. I don't know. I hope it doesn't. But I do want it to change. And if that's what it takes, then I'm I'm all for it. Right? These large corporations are driving me nuts. They're extremely slow. They do not care about the consumer enough, even though the consumer is what makes puts money in their wallet and keeps food on their family's table. I'm not talking about the devs, mind you. I'm talking about the publishers or the people who are in control of the devs. Throughout this, I'm not... The devs are the creators. They're the creatives. Um, I mean, sometimes they're not all great, and sometimes the workplace is awful. I'm not condoning that, but I am just saying as a whole, the devs are the creators. I'm not going to attack them. Just like I don't, you know, I don't like when people attack the filmmaking crew, the cast and crew, the, the director, the writer, the producers, the all of them. They're trying to make the best film they could make. Attack the studio heads, right? Don't attack Abrams or Ryan Johnson for fucking up Star Wars's new trilogy. I mean, they're at fault a little bit for not like communicating or sharing notes or finding a balance, but but it's. Disney studio um, whoever was reviewing the scripts they didn't have a simple structure in place for a trilogy they were just like let's make one and see what we do next it feels like I mean if they did that's incredibly weird they must have had an 8 year old write it out because if you're making a trilogy and it's Star Wars maybe just write a quick outline of what each film should generally cover and then assign your writers and make sure they really flesh it out, make sure they know Star Wars, and then assign everyone else, directors and everyone else who love and know Star Wars, who understand what the mission is, so it has cohesion and continuity. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I don't attack Abrams, and I don't attack Ryan Johnson. I mean, I don't always agree with what exactly they did in their film and how, because they are still part of that creative process, so they still do have faults at it, but... I don't inherently put all the weight on them. That's unfair. It's a studio-led film. Put the weight on the studio. They're the ones paying them. They're the ones ultimately making the final endpoint decisions, right? Same goes with games. I'm not faulting the creative directors or the artists or the uh, coders or anyone else. I can, and sometimes I might, but... No, I'm, I'm faulting the publishers who rush their process, who create crunch, who create toxic work environments, who don't pay them enough. Video games are very, very profitable. The fact that Blizzard employees had to sleep in their car because they, had, they were forced to crunch and work overnight and work and not go home. They weren't paid enough. And Well, they were paid enough, but they weren't paid as much as they should have been. And they had to sleep in their car because the building was locked for the few hours they got. That's horrendous. Bobby Kodak should, and I'm glad he will be, fired. He shouldn't get a golden parachute. should be cut immediately. And he should probably go to jail for his sexual harassment. Or at least go to court and someone should figure out if he did it. And if so, how bad. And what his punishment should be. Honestly, if he did it, I don't see why he shouldn't go to prison. It's illegal. He shouldn't sexually harass anybody. In any form. And it sounds like he, he 
physically um, molested people. So my point is, and this, and mind you, this was a guy who was in charge of Activision Blizzard for like 30 years. I could be wrong on this. I'm going off the top here. And he's still the CEO, and he's going to stay the CEO until Microsoft fully absorbs and acquires Activision Blizzard. Then the OG Phil Spencer, who is genuinely, from what it all seems to be, a good person and is trying to make good video games, will then, he's in charge of Microsoft Gaming, CEO of that, he's getting a bump, and then that means he's in control of all the studios, ultimately. Which is nuts. <laughs> this man's in charge of Blizzard, Activision, Bethesda, and all the other acquisitions Xbox has made, and Xbox. That's, that's a pretty powerful figure in the gaming industry. My point is, it's the publishers we need to look at. You know? Ubisoft's president and CEO, also horrendous workplace toxicity, sexual harassment claims, as well as misogyny and discrimination. Horrendously. I believe they fired him and they have someone new now, so they got on it, but still, it's one of those things where when you're working that long and working that close together and working that late, and, I be, and by long I mean for those many, that many years, because usually when you're working at Ubisoft or EA or these things and you want to be... Uh, don't get me wrong, these people want to make video games for a living. It's what they've wanted to do. It's very hard to get into the industry. It's like film. So it's their love, and they're getting paid well, and they're making games that people are playing. They're in the big studios. They made it, right? However, the workload is so goddamn strenuous. It's unhealthy, and it's unsafe. Right? And then um, the toxicity in the workplace is amplified because not many people leave consistently. It's not a it's not a job where after a couple of years people will cycle through and you get fresh blood. No, no, no. I mean, maybe in certain places and certain regions of that job and certain industry or certain actual studios, but for the most part, if you're comfy and you're getting paid well and you're doing what you love, you're going to stay. And you, you're befriending these people and you're making games. That's why you'll see, like, oh, this guy's the lead artist on... On 12 Call of Duties and three of the other Activision games. Why would he leave that job? But when people do leave, it's either to make a new studio or to join a better culture studio, to leave the toxicity, better pay, or or to work in a studio they've always wanted to work with, you know, for whatever reasons, or personal matters. But the point is that you, they often often leave because of the toxicity. It's horrendous. I don't know if there's any other modern industry in America that's quite like it. It's hard enough to make games, and it does require overtime sometimes. Now, the amount of crunch it takes is too much. And they should be compensated more, and it should be by choice. It shouldn't be by force or by pressure. And that's because every time these publishers set out dates, they set out dates before the game is even conceptualized. So you, if you go and you on, go on Steam, if you have Steam, or go find an indie game, a double-A game, not triple-A, not with Ubisoft, EA, Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo, and a handful of others with their name backing it. Go to a smaller game made by Devolver Digital. 
Even though they're now, I think, a AAA studio, so maybe not. I forget. But my point is, go to some of those studios. Go to some of those games. Go check out Ready or Not if you have Steam and if you're into tactical shooters. It's a phenomenal FPS tactical SWAT simulator. Phenomenal. There's nothing quite like it on the market. And it's actually selling quite well. The publisher, Team 17, who is getting bigger, still kind of lower rank realm, but is getting bigger slowly, um, was signed on, probably gave a nice chunk of money to boost the, the, the studio, Void Interactive, and then uh, they split for unknown reasons, just didn't see eye to eye for certain things, and Void Interactive is self-publishing and self-developing, and the game is fucking phenomenal, considering it's been in development for four or five years. They've had to fundraise it pretty much themselves, other than probably a small cash injection <laughs> from Team 17 when they signed on, which probably helped boost a lot of things along. And there's still an alpha build, alpha release. I don't think it's a full release yet, and it works pretty phenomenally. You can tell there's some cuts, but it's a $40 game for one, and two, it looks great. It plays the way it's promised to play. There are some bugs and glitches, but it's not too bad. And it's an overall well-made game. You know, they probably put pressure on themselves, as you do when you're a creator. But they are self-publishing. They have the freedom and choice and movement to do and proceed how they see fit. So my point is that the these are things we have to keep in mind. And... We as consumers have to be more patient. We need to kind of come together on the stopping the annualization thing. It's killing our devs. Because devs don't just work on one game. They work on one primary game that their name's attached to. But if they're part of a larger studio system, they're helping with assets and with making things. Right? Raven Software is a dev. They used to develop full games. And now their entire purpose is to help fix code bug and and polish every Call of Duty game. I mean, there's so many devs that have used to be making games that we used to love that don't anymore because they've been reassigned to help teams that are taking on the mantle of the bigger games that sell, right? See, all the time it happens, and sometimes you need to trade those resources and have the extra support. I'm not saying don't. I'm just saying understand that these these devs are being stretched few and far between from software I mean so look at CD Projekt Red right when they were developing the Witcher they were developing the Witcher 3's big expansion and by the way that I don't mean like oh it's big no no I mean that expansion added 40 hours of new gameplay to it <sighs> new weapons new items new an entire new region and a new campaign storyline I mean 40 hours that's the size of many games. And that was just an expansion to a game that was already fucking massive and award-winning. And that was one of two expansions that were near to that size. So sometimes when you say expansion, you're like, oh, okay, like a new map pack and some weapons. That's one thing. But no, no, no. This is basically they just made an entire new game. <laughs> I mean, it's an extended, you know, it's an extension. They didn't have to build it from the ground up. But my point is, I mean, that took a lot of time. 
they expanded tenfold in the process of that because on the other side of them, they were they're self-publishing and self-developing, so that kind of helps. But on the other side, they were expanding and hiring to start making cyberpunk. I mean, that happens, and that's their choice. They're finishing up DLC, and they're shifting resources to start the new game, the new IP, the big, the new seller. There's no problem with that. It's just they didn't do it quite right, or they just... I don't know. I wasn't there. I can't speak on it. I'm just saying that it didn't... Cyberpunk didn't turn down as polished as it could have and should have been. It needed another year in the oven. Another delay. That's because them as publishers were too eager to start throwing out dates before the game was even in alpha build. So, I, I don't get it. I don't get why they do that to themselves if they're publishing it and developing it. If you have another publisher doing it, that's one thing can't really help it they're in control but if you're publishing your own development game why do that to why say oh it's coming out december this or april this when it's not when it's not even close why not just delay it once and say either indefinitely so you just kill all expectations and rumors though usually that kills all the buzz so i wouldn't do that Or you just say, why didn't they just say from the start, April 2021, April 4th, 2021, not not delay it five times between the courses of fall 2019 and early 2020, or late 20, I'm sorry, December to, yeah, from, I think April 2020 was its original thing, and then they pushed it back throughout all of 2020 because of COVID, and no, I mean, we've heard now that it wasn't ready even if there was no COVID. So, that's what I'm getting at. Hell, if they said April 2022, sure, we'd be pissed. But not as pissed if we got a game that still needs work and through until... It's almost April 2022, and the game is just now getting to a point where it's playable and fun for everybody, and it's got enough content and enough to do. That's what I'm talking about. And if they didn't have to do live patches and fixes, and if they didn't have to be under the microscope and and have all these other things going on, they could have just stayed quiet and stuck their nose to the grindstone and delayed it two more years and really polished it. Would have been fine. They shipped the game knowing it was broken because they couldn't risk delaying it. Now, that's partially due to us as consumers. The community was getting so enraged by them to delay it over and over, they were threatening the devs, which is absolutely horrendous. The people making the art that you love to consume should never be threatened for what they're making, and they should never feel rushed. They feel enough pressure, trust me. If you're a creator, you feel enough pressure to to outdo your previous work and to do it in a timely manner. They already have, they know. You telling them isn't going to change the personal internal pressure they have it's not gonna be like oh maybe i should work a little faster a little more no that's not how that works if someone comes up to me and says yo we want that new album i'm honored i'm flattered i'm enthused and i know (laughs) i know the people who liked chameleon want the follow-up trust me that's why it's so goddamn stressful right now it's great it's turning out phenomenal and it's going to be even better than chameleon but um but it takes time and you have to give me time to make it as well as do the other things in my life. Now, I'm in a lucky position where either not enough people know me, so I don't actually have that pressure, legitimately. And for when I do have that pressure, the people who are giving it to me 
understand. They understand the process, or they understand that it takes time. They also understand that I do deliver. And when I say it's releasing on a certain date, I've never shifted or pushed it back. Thank video games for that. Me being a consumer and a player of video games, I've learned that I will not, if I can help it at any point, if, I, if, I, if it's out of my control, that's one thing. But if I can help it, I won't announce the release date of an album, of a film, of a project that I'm working on that I'm building hype up for if I don't know it yet. If it's not a finished product that's being shipped already. You know what I mean? Unless the distributor has an issue, literally like a technical issue, or something gets flagged late stage, and even then I'm, I, I buffer it, so even then I have enough time to handle it so it still ships on release day. And at the very worst, it probably would just be pushed back one week. It's never happened. Every time I've announced a release date for an, for an album or mixtape, every time I've announced a release date for a short film, it's released on that day. And so the people who were excited, who were keeping an eye out, and at my phase, in my career, it's not that I'm generating a shit ton of hype. It's not like if Kendrick announced a release date. No, no, no. But it is like um, the it's consistency. It's the very few people who are keeping an eye out or when I do these big promo pushes for an entire month, really highlighting the, the album, teasing it, let it be known to the, to the best of my ability that it's coming out and it's coming out on this date. The reason why I hammer that home is because I might only get one shot for people. For, I only get one weekend, three days total. I may only get that. To have a mass surge of people who support me or who just know about me or who follow me lightly and have maybe a few new people who see the hashtags or something. Or see it by some other means. That's it. So if I'm hyping it up for a couple weeks that it's this day, or, or a couple months, and it turns out not to be, that's not the end of the world. The people who are already tuned in and will know that the release date changed will know that's not the issue. The issue is all of the marketing that I've already put out there now has the wrong release date. So the few people who might just check it out on a whim who say, eh, fuck it, I'll see one song. That sounds kind of cool. You know, you see a song in a promo and you might go check it out if you like it. You're like, oh, this kind of groovy. It's only 30 seconds. You're like, oh, I'm itching to hear that. And you go look it up and it ain't out yet. Then what? Right? Then you lose that person and they're not coming back again. Not because you've broken their trust or like, man, fuck this guy. They just are like, okay, well, that was that. And they move on and they forget about you. So that's where I'm at right now. But for big devs, for big studios, when they say they're releasing something, unless a general technical thing actually comes up, I don't mind if they push it back and they say, hey, it wasn't ready. We did some more tests and we thought it was ready and it wasn't. That happens. But we know internally now that CD Projekt Red set forth that date before they even, while the game was still being built as a third-person game. So, if I was in charge of CD Projekt Red, and they said, oh, actually, it doesn't work, we're switching your first person, and we, everyone okayed that, and I okayed that, I wouldn't keep the same damn date, and maybe they didn't. I wouldn't push it back just three months, or four months, or six months. I'd probably push it back a year to two years, because that means you have to rebuild the entire game. From the, I mean, almost from the ground up, not directly, but 
I mean, some of the assets still stay. You have to change the entire perspective, the engine, and everything in between. They figure that out. They change third to first person like three years into its dev cycle. What the fuck? <laughs> I mean, it's fine. It's no problem. It's just like, that's when you were like, huh, okay, so maybe we aren't going to make a April 2020 window. And then, of course, the pandemic. And then after the pandemic hit and things started closing down around the world in early March, maybe then you're like, eh, there's a good chance we're not coming to work or this is going to hold the video game industry. Let's just push it back to 2021. Let's give us another year. Don't try to make that holiday window. You have enough people. If they're not a small game. They they would have had enough people. They didn't need to make a December uh, it, October through December is the ideal holiday window for gaming. They didn't need to do that. But they did. And it turned out that the most popular thing about the game was the issues. And that's... Well, you don't, you don't want that. And that has permanently scarred their reputation. And their reputation was held to a very high standard. In fact, they were regarded as one of the only last AAA studios and publishers that did care about its people, that did make good games, and that delivered quality on a timely manner. And their magnum opus fumbled the ball. Well, Witcher 3 is a magnum opus, but their biggest game that they really pushed a lot into and did a great job with it. It's a great game. Stumbled and fell. And in a time like this, you have three months when you first release a game. And those first two weeks are the most important of the initial impressions that will stay in people's mind regardless of how much your game changes over the course of a few years. There's only a few exceptions. And Rainbow Six is that exception. Overwatch is that exception. There are a few exceptions where the perception does actually change as the game evolves enough. Right? Not many people are going back and watching the Rainbow Six Siege review from seven years ago. They're going to watch the more updated one from 2020, two years ago. You know what I mean? Uh, so for that matter, it's a little different, but for the most part, those first two weeks and then and then those first three months will give you an idea of how long people will actually play your game for. If you can keep people for three months semi-consistently, then you know maybe you can keep them for another three months. If you can't, then that's bad for you as a dev and a publisher. Cyberpunk lost its player base so quickly within the first two months. Battlefield 2042, another prime example of the hype engine at work. Battlefield 5 wasn't actually a bad game, it just wasn't as good or as polished as people were hoping. It wasn't bad, it was just lackluster and a little glitchy. People were outraged by some of it, but whatever. I just didn't get it. Because I saw all the controversy and the lack of content. So I just said, I'll wait a year or two till it's on sale. Got it on sale. It's a phenomenal game now. It's super fun. Definitely worth a play if you're interested. So Battlefield 2042, going back to its roots. It's modern and all these things. But they stayed so quiet for so long. They said, oh, it's ready. Oh, we're, we're ready. We're a few months in. It's right. And everyone's like, okay. You better be. Vanguard just came out and Vanguard fumbled. Vanguard wasn't good. Oh, not Vanguard. Um, I don't know, something else. And everyone's like, okay. 
We haven't had a battlefield in a while, and this looks like it's going back to its roots, and it's doing everything we wanted, so... And the, the trailers looked incredible. Everything. I was hyped. I was like, this might be the only first-person shooter that's good for the year. Still unsure of how Halo Infinite would turn out, of course. Especially its multiplayer. So here's two examples back-to-back, -back, right? From just 2021 to 2022 alone. Battlefield 2042 and Halo Infinite. Here we go. Ready? So Battlefield 2042 had all the hype, had all the... And then it's beta. People are like, it's buggy, but it's kind of fun. I hated it. I played the beta, and it was so bad, so broken, so buggy. And even when it wasn't glitching out on me constantly, even if there was a sliver of five minutes where it wasn't, it was boring. I was walking on foot for four or five minutes until I could find somebody. Yes, Battlefield's a large-scale game, and you are walking on foot a lot sometimes or running or finding a vehicle, but there's often pockets and areas that are more close, medium to close range, and you're interwoven on a larger map. So sections that connect beautifully in its map design of some of the better Battlefields. I mean, Battlefield 1 is one of my all-time favorites. Its map design is phenomenal. Its graphics, its gameplay, its balancing, everything's pretty top-notch in that game. Battlefield 3, 4 as well, right? regardless of their of Battlefield 4's launch issues. So, you know, the, those are prime examples. They know what they're doing at this point. Even Battlefield 5 is really good now, after some of its fixes and cleanups. So 2042, I was kind of excited. I'm like, okay, hopefully. Played the beta. I, I've never played a beta. I'll be honest with you. I play, I play betas when I can. You know, free couple days. Why not? Get an idea of the game. Uh, hopefully help the game devs. I've never played a beta where so quickly I was like, oh yeah, this is a no-go for me. I played the Vanguard beta, and even then I was like, this isn't really for me, but it is fun. It's fun for a few hours. I could see myself getting into it and just kind of for kicking back and relaxing for an hour or two, but not really my thing. But that's okay. Um, I would mostly get it because of cross-playing because my other friends play it, so to have a game to play with them, it's it's worth the sacrifice, I guess. It wasn't. Vanguard wasn't worth it at the end. Cold War was even it was a better alternative. Vanguard had better multiplayer. Cold War had better zombies and everything else. Modern Warfare 2019 had the whole package other than Spec Ops. Anyway, going into Battlefield, though, I played that beta. It was open for two days, and I had those two days free to play it. And I was like, I played the first 30 minutes. I played two matches, and it, I had so little fun. I'm like... I'm not subjecting myself to this. I'm going to play um, whatever other game I was playing, Splitgate or something at the time. Um, I, I can't. This is unfun. Killed all of my energy and enthusiasm towards that game immediately. The hype engine that they've had on me since summer of that year, uh, of even earlier. I was just, I was like, no, I'm not getting this game. Because it was only two months away, or no, it was only 45 days away from release. Don't release a beta when it's 45 days from release. And when it's that bad, don't tell us, oh, it's a two or three month old build. Even then, even if it's a six month old build for this beta, it was still too bad to be put out in 45 days. That is, that is two years worth of fixes. And on top of that, or no, no, not really. It's eight, eight months, eight months worth of fixes. And then even when you fix it, the gameplay is boring. So it's not even for me. I can separate the bugs and the technicalities. I could. With Cyberpunk, it was really buggy for me at times. But I was lucky. It wasn't too bad for a lot of the time. And 
I knew underneath it, it was a really good core gameplay experience, and I had fun. Battlefield, I knew even if the bugs weren't there, this would be boring. And I'm kind of glad the bugs were there, because it made it so much apparent that I shouldn't buy it at all. Whereas if they weren't there and it was a well-polished game, but it was just boring, I probably would have bought it, played it for about 20, 10 to 20 hours, and then said, ah, damn. It's the first Battlefield that just didn't hook me fully. It's a shame. On the flip side, at the same time, almost as a direct punch to the throat of Battlefield, Halo Infinite said, oh, fuck it, we're just dropping our, our multiplayer. It's in beta, but it's the full multiplayer. Smartest marketing move they ever did. They were garnering hype already. The tech tests were going well. And for a beta, sure, it doesn't run perfectly on my PC, and that's because, partially because just how it's optimized. It's not really the game. It is the game, but it's the way it's optimized. It's not like it's buggy. It's very well polished. Gameplay loop is some of the best Halo's ever done. And it's super fun. Lacking content, but I was okay with that because they released it a month before they actually planned on releasing it. Before the campaign would come out. It was coming in on December 8th. They released this on like November 14th or something. So almost a month before. I was hyped. I was like, okay, this is a good day. I woke up. I was so excited. Made my day almost. And it was fun. And I had a blast. I'm like, wow, I can't believe a minute. But man, did it feel like a beta. Because of the lack of content. Plenty of people were playing it. It wasn't that. It really just felt like a training module, though, because it felt like there were only, there were only four game modes and, like, eight maps. Um, it's too repetitive. Splitgate, free-to-play, new game. Blew up in popularity. I played it about a month before it hit its peak and really blew up and became massive. And it's a really fun game, really well made, free to play. I don't play it as much anymore, it's kind of lost its steam. But my point is, that game had more modes, features, and maps in it. And it was kind of copying Halo, but it, it, it's not Halo. You'd think Halo would come at bare minimum with everything the previous Halo had. Out the gate. So I was like, okay, maybe not in beta. Maybe they're balancing and polishing these things. Fine. I'll allow it. It's only a month. And I was I was convinced on December 8th we get a massive update that does bug fixes and cleans it up and takes rid of that beta patch and then adds in a crap ton of content. Like 8 to 12 new maps and 10 new game modes or more. And some balances. And if they did that, I guarantee you if they did that and they got rid of their stupid... And they fixed their battle pass and they got rid of their stupid armor core restrictions. The game would be much more playable. They didn't. They didn't add anything. They added some bug fixes. That's it. And then the following, like two weeks later, they added a small, a new playlist and a seasonal event. It has been a trickle of fucking content. And it's... So, where Battlefield tripped and fumbled and killed their hype by... Dropping a bad game with bad issues. Halo did all the right things in terms of dropping it early, making it free to play, making it accessible, and it's really fun, and it's actually very well made. It's a great game. Not enough content at all. So lacking, and they didn't keep up with it. That was their biggest issue. 
Everyone's applauding the gameplay and the fun factor, and no one at 343 or Microsoft said, um, wait a fucking second. We're a month into this game being out. It's got great energy. It's got great buzz. We're gonna lose it. We've got, you know, we've got all these new games coming out in 2022 because they were delayed. Um, We have the world's attention right now. Let's let's drop a let's drop some new playlists and modes that are just common in Halo. It'd be you know what it'd be like it'd be kind of like if um, Call of Duty dropped and didn't have like two or three classic modes. Like it didn't have I don't know. Uh, kill confirmed. And a couple other modes. And it was like a Modern Warfare two, and it didn't have like or the Modern Warfare remake, and it didn't have a couple maps that you might accept, expect from that, or something, you know what I mean? Like, two or three maps that you would see. You know, even though Vanguard wasn't great, content was not the issue, for once. They didn't lack there. They actually did a good job on that, so... That kept me playing that game longer, even though that gameplay loop wasn't fun. Halo's gameplay loop is very fun. Some balancing issues. Vehicles feel like shit. Certain weapons are just so unusable. And they haven't fixed them still. This game's been out for almost six months. And they haven't balanced any of the weapons since day one. Or the vehicles. They've added but two maps, maybe. Even, I I don't even know if they've done that. And they've added, thank God they added SWAT. But it's not as fun as I was hoping it would be. Because they have most of the maps on SWAT on... Arenas that should not be SWAT maps. They didn't have original maps for SWAT's mode. Or maps that would be conducive. Now, driving hard on nostalgia there, so it's also, that's part of it, but come on. Six months in, they can't even give a roadmap, and that's an issue. So those are two examples of where AAA games either did great on the jump, right out the gate, and crashed and stumbled or crashed and stumbled and can't get back up and it's a shame they're beloved franchises wish we were getting a Titanfall 3 at this point so to conclude the video game industry is in a very weird place we have some incredible games that are out Horizon Zero Dawn or Forbidden West I get it mixed up I, I don't have a Playstation but I anyway Ghost of Tsushima that looks like a great game um, we've got Successes like the hopeful and so far so good year seven of Rainbow Six Siege, right? We've got Elden Ring taking the cake. Apparently that Guardians of the Galaxy game is great. Square Enix did a good job improving off of where they fucked up with Avengers. So we've got a lot of gems and a lot of phenomenal releases and more to come because we're not even... We're only a third of the way through this year. However, that being said, we have so many bigger games where all the money is actually in and where a lot of the time that takes away from other games that we want to see failing and flopping and they're going to keep doing it. So it's a weird time to be a gamer. It's not inherently bad. It's much better than it was, I'd say, in 2017. Where a lot of the games were just ass right out the gate. Microtransactions were broken. 
and the freedom and flexibility and the growth of indie studios weren't as wasn't as acceptable and game pass and all these streaming choices weren't as available so 2016 2017 through 2018 was much more rough in my opinion than it is now however we're still suffering from the same core and fundamental issues that have been in place since 2013 if it wasn't for Game Pass, and if it wasn't for free-to-play games, if it wasn't for if, and if it wasn't for banning microtransactions, we probably would have seen a collapse by now, and a dramatic reworking. You would think, after the failures of so many games that should have made a lot of money and should have been played time and time again, Battlefront 2, Battlefield 2042, hopefully Halo Infinite gets her shit together, um... See, uh, Cyberpunk, you, you would think that we would look at their failures and then look at the su- successes of Jedi Fallen Order, Call of Duty, Modern Warfare 2019, Elden Ring, right? And, and a handful of others that I'm, well, a lot that I'm missing out on, I'm not thinking about right now. But you would think we'd see all that and then say, huh. You'd think the devs and publishers would say, huh. They do like quality games. Go figure. But they won't. Because Elden Ring sold 12 million copies. Whoopee. But Call of Duty? If Call of Duty only sold 12 million copies in its first month? Or first two weeks? They'd kill themselves. All, all, every, the publisher, everyone. They'd just, be, they'd just all put a gun to their head and pull the trigger. 12 million is a lot. That's incredible for anyone. Except for the ones that are on top. Because 12 million is very little for them. Those initial two weeks are where you get the most, right? It's the highest. It's where all the hype, the anticipation, the pre-orders, it's where all the stupidity, all of it. It all culminates in those first two to three weeks. Right? Regardless of the quality of the game. It's too early to tell if the game's good, right? So that's kind of a general benchmark. It's from software's highest selling game, Elden Ring, at 12 million. Right? Now, they don't split assets and all that, and they develop one game at a time, and they're bigger than they were back in 2018, much bigger, but they're still relatively small. So that, they not only made their money back, but they didn't break even, they made a shit ton of money back. Bondi Namco is celebrating. They want to make it a franchise, which is a scary sign, but if they make it like a Dark Souls franchise, okay, no problem. My point is, it's not the end of the world. They're doing a great job. But Call of Duty, Vanguard got 12... I forget what they got, but Vanguard was one of their lowest, and it was still like... I want to say like 30 to 40 million copies. Maybe less, maybe less. Maybe 20... If it's 12 million, though, I know for a fact 12 million for COD is, is low, low number for the first two weeks. For later in its cycle, three to six months later, that might be realistic, but in its first two weeks, the hype, the anticipation, the consistency, they're getting more than 12 million easily. So these are the things we have to look out for. I know this is a long, 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 long episode, my longest by far, but I appreciate everyone sticking around. I appreciate allowing you allowing me to go in depth and talk about this while I have the free time and the energy to do so. And until next time, have a good one, everyone.